So what is this thing? There's a app or game or something where you just have to hold your finger on the screen. What is the backstory to this this troll thing that you posted? I know almost nothing about the app, but I but what I gathered from context is like it's a it's a contest. It's kind of like remember to like trivia HQ HQ trivia or whatever, where it's like a, a mobile game where everyone can participate. It's like that, but the game is how long can you hold your finger on the screen? And as you can imagine, people can do that for really long. And if it's like a worldwide group thing, like if you look at some of the timers and some of those videos that I showed you, I think some of them were at nine hours. So streamers do it, right? Like, oh, we're doing this thing. How long can you keep your finger on the, the screen of your phone? And it's surprisingly hard because, you know, you get lazy or you, you get bored after a couple of hours or I don't know. Anyway, that's what I assume is what's happening. I, I just liked it because of people trolling the hey dingus thing where the, the, the strategy was because they're they're like streamers. The, the culture of streaming is such that you have to communicate with the people in the chat, essentially, by reading their usernames and, and addressing them, right? Because you're there for nine hours. Like, it's the whole thing of streaming. Like, especially mm-hmm. if someone subscribes, hey, thanks, whatever, for the two-month subscription. Like, there's things that you have to do culturally as a streamer. So they're susceptible to – what's the social hacking called? Social engineering. Social engineering. Yeah, there you go. They're very susceptible to that. So someone just changed their Twitch username to H-E-Y space capital Z – space r-e-e uh that is very good it's very good so someone so they would say something or subscribe to the channel or whatever and the, and the streamer would read out hey z re thanks for the sub and then, and then they would activate <laughs> oh. hey dingus on their phone and that would cause their finger to be because uh, uh, it's full screen right siri would go full screen and they would basically take their finger off thing after nine hours holding their finger on their phone screen. Application did resign active. <laughs> yep. And <laughs> and the thing is, they didn't realize it was they like, oh, my God, I just activated the thing on my phone. And it's full screen. You can't see it. it's all black. And then when the black screen goes away, what's left underneath it is a screen that says you lose from the from the finger holding game. So it's so good, but so, so <laughs> bad. Doing it after nine hours is the best. <laughs> <laughs> is it like you, you don't do it in the first hour right you don't do it immediately and just the look on these people's faces the one person who just got up from his desk and left the room <laughs> and, it, and the thing is they pronounced it that you're like there's no way that activation is going to work hey z re <laughs> like they, they read it out like that but sure enough <laughs> it goes oh god i had some fun this past week dealing with the um our continued efforts to try to add the bootleg feed to our membership in a way that it does not require a ton of extra work. Challenge number one was I have to figure out how to make myself sound as bad as you guys do over Skype. <laughs> well, well, okay, or, slow down, slow down, slow down a little or, bit. <laughs> right, there's, there's an or here that you're not considering. So to back up just ever so quickly and slightly, we basically have two choices for this forthcoming bootleg, and this week is not going to be the week unless Marco has news that even I haven't heard. But Nope, I sure don't. We can either do the quick and dirty approach, which is basically take the recording of Marco locally and the two of us via Skype and just throw that up after trimming, you know, the teeniest little bit in the front of the end that is just private for the three of us. And that is what we broadcast over the live stream is it's being broadcast from my computer. It is getting my local track and it's getting John and Casey via Skype, which is exactly what I'm hearing. It's been what we've always broadcast over the live stream. Right. Then the alternative is, which for the record, John and I have both independently volunteered to do is we wait for all three of our files to be in the same spot. And then we used for we use forecast and other tools to just line them up and, and barf out as quickly as possible a lined up uh, a local recording 
merged version of the three of us, which would sound way better, but be somewhere between annoyingly more work and considerably more work. Right. And it would sound better. It would not, you know, have any of the editing fixes that I usually do, things like undoing talkovers and cutting out really boring stories that that I stumble over and try to get <laughs> try to get out. <laughs> uh stuff like that. But I've been resisting that plan because I know that while lining up the tracks and getting the combo, you know, mix of the three of us usually works well, it sometimes doesn't. And it sometimes requires like 45 minutes of <laughs> piecing together multiple files and lining stuff up and everything. Whereas the live stream, I could publish in three minutes after we finish recording. Like the live stream can be published very quickly, like just the, the straight up bootleg that has them via Skype and me via local. Um, whereas the, the, you know, put together our files thing could usually be published within maybe a half hour, maybe 45 minutes, but sometimes might take a couple hours. And that all, that work all has to be done before I go to bed uh, for, the, you know, after we record where, you know, all three of us are kind of reluctant to do a lot of work, you know, that late at night after we're tired. Um, and it is it is a variable amount of time that is usually moderate, but can sometimes be more than moderate. So my my thinking was, let's like, from what live stream bootleg fans tell us, it seems like time is of the essence. It seems like the main reason they want it is to get it as quickly as possible. Um, but if we can make it sound a lot better with, you know, half hour of work, well, that's that's something. Uh, so, you know, we're, we've been debating this. Anyway, all this is to say, to my initial plan has just been put up the the exactly what's broadcast from Skype, and and even though it doesn't sound as good, people who want the live stream bootleg don't seem to care and seem to do seem to want it quickly. So speed is important to them, it seems. So I, I first had to figure out how to make myself sound as bad as they do over <laughs> Skype. So I I have uh, combined a this I have this very long chain and audio hijack to do all this. And I combine like a dynamics processor to basically be a crude compressor to really squish my dynamics into the same range they are. So we're all the same volume. Then the critical discovery was I have to apply a low pass filter to my voice where I just lop off any frequency above about eight kilohertz. And, and I realized then, well, MP3s can then you can reduce the sampling rate down from 44.1 kilohertz, which is CD audio quality down to like 22 kilohertz because everything you know eight kilohertz and below frequency wise can be represented perfectly with a 22 kilohertz uh sampling rate and the very first time i tried importing one of these files into our cms the duration detection broke (laughs) and this led me down a rabbit hole which led me to realize oh dropping the sample rate to 22 kilohertz made it no longer technically an mp3 it became an MP2. What? <laughs> this is this is old like stuff from the '90s that most people have forgotten about. Um, but MP3, which is MPEG one layer three audio, only supports 32, 44, and 48 kilohertz as the sample rate. If you actually set the sample rate lower than 32 kilohertz, and or if you set to a certain a certain subset of bit rates that are only available in MP2 uh, and 2.5 kind of weird extension formats. MP3 encoders can still play it and will gladly encode it, but what it's actually technically encoding is an MPEG-2 file. It's still layer 3, 
and it's either MPEG-2 or this kind of like thing that's kind of unofficially called MPEG-2.5. And all of these are part of uh, MP3 modern encoders and decoders, even though sometimes it's actually MPEG-2 layer 3. As you can all imagine, I wrote the duration detection code from scratch to read MP3s in PHP for CMS. Of course I did. Of course you did. And I base this on my the same thing I do in Overcast, where in Overcast I have my own complete MP3 timing and seeking code because the Apple frameworks are not incredibly good always at dealing with dynamic ad insertion from the big publisher podcasts or from doing precise seeking when the ID3 tag is large, like if there's a large artwork uh, or a large a lot of chapters in a file. So what I do in Overcast is I manually read the MP3. I have to look at every chunk of what's called a frame, which is like a certain chunk of audio in, in the MPEG format. I look at every chunk. I see what byte offset it's at, and I store that in a seek table. So that way, I can precisely seek to exactly the right byte in a file and have the duration exactly right so you don't like run over and have it start counting up again at the end and stuff like that. So I did the same thing in PHP. For for our CMS, what? So I would never have to enter duration manually. I'd said, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to read MP3s, and it turns out that I did not support MP2s. And so I've been part of what I had to do this past week. Instead of working on iOS 14 or my my new app <laughs> widget or app clips or any of the new modern stuff that I'm supposed to be doing right now, instead I was writing in PHP, uh, and then later in Objective C to complete the Overcast implementation expanding my mp3 parsing library to also support mpeg 2 and 2.5 frames and all three layers and trying to look up technical information on the mp3 file format is quite an ordeal because the actual documentation that's publicly available for a lot of this stuff is like forum posts from 2001 Oh god! <laughs> or like oh, no. a web page from like 1998 that looks like it's from 1998 that like it's like oh here here's here's the mp3 frame header layout here's like how many how how do you know how many bytes the frame is well mp3 it's easy you can find little little snippets mp2 there's not a lot of information on that so you have to do you have to like dig up like weird forum posts and if you're lucky an obscure stack overflow answer about like how how many samples are in a frame how big is the frame how, like it's so i had to do a lot of like really deep dive digging to look up very old technology that i'm reimplementing for no good reason but for my own personal you know obsession reasons all this during the week following wwc 2020 i'm looking up how to decode mp2 files you couldn't just find the spec online i was unable to find anything that definitively included a lot of that stuff do you have to pay for it maybe like i mean i don't know if it's like an open spec or if it's you have to be a member of the consortium and pay money or something but i mean surely there is a specification somewhere so fraunhofer was the institute that did most of the initial inventing and did all had all the patents on it and yeah, they i was gonna say maybe you can find the spec but it's in german right well no i mean they they sold like they they had their own encoder and, and reference decoder and it's actually a very good encoder and i wish i could use it uh, and it's what Apple uses in Logic and in iTunes. It, it's it, in almost any commercial product that encodes MP3s. Usually, it's using the Fraunhofer encoder, which they licensed back forever ago. Problem is, 
when the MP3 when the last uh, MP3 patents expired a couple of years back, Fraunhofer stopped licensing it because they could no longer make any money from it. So they just shut down the whole program. So now you can't get you like you cannot license a new version of their encoder for a new product at any cost. Believe me, I tried. I asked because uh, I wanted it for forecast because it's actually better than than the lame encoder that I use. Um, it's actually better than that at low bit rates for speech, uh, and it's faster. But you can't get it. Like they just aren't licensing it anymore. So like it's it's such an old format, and there's no more patents uh, active on it. So there's no more business in licensing it. So basically, no one has documented it. And like the only the, the main documentation of it seems to be just like the source code to things that decode MP3s. Oh goodness! So like you have to look at something that already had already decodes them and look at the source code and see. Oh, here's. Here's how they do this. Okay, I, I guess that has to be you know 144 samples long this time. Oh, look in this weird switch statement, this is 160. Okay, I guess that's the value. Like the, there is no seeming concrete place to find this information online. Delightful. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's why Overcast is not yet ready for iOS 14. <laughs> It's all our fault. Now, to be clear, as in the chat said earlier, this all started from you desiring to sound worse. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's it's me taking advantage <laughs> of the fact that well, if I'm going to sound worse, I might as well save some space in the process. That's fair. But oh my goodness, this is this is a significant rabbit hole. You got nerd sniped <laughs> real good. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I, I basically snipe myself, but you know, I am very good at that uh, when it comes to audio low, low level audio hacking, like. I, I'm trying to figure out like what the heck to do with my UI code in this in the, the present day, and and I, I I have some ambitious plans that I might have, I might like rewrite a whole bunch of it and everything. But writing UI code, dealing with UI code is like it just destroys my my motivation and my productivity. I, I don't enjoy it at all, and mm-hmm. which is which actually might inform my decision. And I want to spend as little time on that as possible because it just it just sucks a time suck and it's paralyzing to to feature development. Uh, but Get me involved in a low level uh, like audio hole, and I will gladly dive into that and kill like a day on some weird hack. Like I tried, I tried writing uh, code to detect dynamic ad insertion, which I actually partially succeeded at, but not enough to be to do anything useful. Um, but like I just I love low level audio digging for you know things that might prove useful or generally don't prove useful uh for um for doing this weird mp3 hacking i, I just it, it it's I, I get great great joy out of it where i don't get that joy out of like i have to make another screen of ui like i, I hate doing that mm-hmm. <laughs> but this kind of stuff I, I love this kind of stuff but you'll love it once you start using swift ui right then it'll be fun again uh yeah that was a joke i I think he might actually find it less tedious i mean yes but that would require marco to put on his big boy pants and actually learn swift well i mean he should really wait another year because he'll find it less tedious until he hits his first roadblock and then he'll be like i should just do this in ui kit (laughs) well and well yeah so first of all you're both right um (laughs) but but i think Okay, so I guess we're talking about this now. <laughs> so part of, <laughs> part of my thinking, I guess this maybe is follow up because it's about Overcast, which exists. Um, part of my thinking <laughs> is that my skill set is rapidly, rapidly aging. Like the the longer I go without really using a lot of Swift, which has been the case, like I, I will occasionally write like one quick thing in it, but I, I've, I'm still mostly not using it. So the longer that goes, like I look at the content from WWDC and any modern documentation, pretty much any modern sample code online, blog posts explaining new technologies and everything, 
and I only kind of understand it. So far, I know Swift the way I know JavaScript. I can read it, I can write it, but I never really learned it, and I'm not very good at it, and so I tend to avoid it. Often at my own, ex- you know, often at significant expense to like what my stuff can do or what it should do or how it should be written. So I can e- I can keep doing this, and I can keep kind of like you know knowing enough Swift to get by, but still often finding myself like translating a Swift snippet I see online back to Objective C because the file I'm writing is already Objective C, and I might as well leave it that way. Um, but my skill set is aging very quickly. And it's been aging for, you know, what, six years, seven years now that Swift has been out? But, you know, and, and the first couple of years, I think it made sense to hold off, let it get polished, you know, let all the, all the stuff settle down. But we're past that point now for Swift by, by a, a good couple of years at least. So I need to be writing a lot more Swift than I am because if I keep going the way I'm going, where I basically never learn it, I'm never going to be good at it the same way I'm not good at JavaScript. But I can get away with not being good at JavaScript because I don't mostly write web apps. I do mostly write iOS apps and I can no longer get away with not knowing it as badly as I have not been knowing it and not been using it. And Swift UI is very young still. Swift UI is a couple of years behind Swift, you know, obviously in, in that, that pattern of like, when is it a good idea to really jump in on it? Um, but Swift UI is clearly, if not the future, it is going to probably at least be a significant part of the future. And everything is getting more cross-platform. Everything that Apple's doing is getting more like, hey, use this thing, and then you can run it on iPad and iPhone and the Mac and maybe the Apple TV and who knows, right? And if they continue to push forward into things like um, like possibly AR goggles, uh, glasses, whatever they're going to call them, or, you know, know, again, including stuff like the watch, these kind of like specialized things, Swift UI is becoming increasingly important. Swift already is very, very important. And I really don't know either of them. And so if I'm going to continue to have the career that I have, I need to know them. Like, it's simple as that. I need to jump in. I need to learn them extremely well because this is my career. And I can keep not knowing them, but I'm just making my knowledge totally obsolete. And if I went back right now and tried to get a career as a web developer, I really couldn't. Oh, I'd be screwed. Because I did let that part of my expertise get obsolete and and i i fell so far behind because i haven't been doing it and i frankly don't want to but like i've been i've been so far behind web development that like i basically can't be a web developer anymore and it would take me years to try to catch up if i really wanted to i can't let myself get that way on the ios side as well so one thing i'm thinking about doing is taking the next six to eight months probably and rewriting large parts of my UI in Swift and Swift UI. Oh, Marco, no, no. Really going in and adopting it heavily. Because I don't, like, if I don't do that, I'm never going to. Like, I'm never going to jump in. I'm never going to really get myself in there. I mean, this might be a little early for Swift UI, but it's not too early for Swift. No. And my UI is simple enough. And I and there's, there's parts of this where I, I need to modernize like keep in mind i wrote most overcast's code like most of the basic ui code stuff like you know most of the basic lists the the table views like the list screens which is most of the app i wrote most of that six years ago so it it predates a lot of modern technologies it's still like you know i I use auto layout pretty sparingly 
Um, I, I still don't do a great job of adopting to, um, dynamic text sizes, which is an accessibility issue, which I, I do want to solve. And I, I currently do a pretty bad job of it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other like, you know, stuff you get for free that I don't do, uh, or that I don't support, um, things like, you know, I have to manually do all the dark mode stuff. I have to manually do all the, the font sizing stuff. It's just, it, it, I have a lot of cruft and and uh, technical debt in my UI layer, and I did I did all this great modernization of the audio layer this past year, and that felt great. But the UI is really stale. And there's things that I want to do. There's features I want to do. There's UI changes I want to make. There's redesigns I need to do because the app is also, by the way, looking I think very dated right now, um, especially the list screens, especially the root screen. Um, it's looking very very dated. It does not fit in the modern aesthetic at all. And so I want to do all this. I want to do all this redesigning. I want to jump in. I want to modernize my skills. It is a little aggressive feeling to do that like this fall or winter, which is when it would probably be released. But I also at the same time, like I control the whole app. I can, I can do whatever I want. Like <laughs> I have no boss saying you have to support back to iOS nine. Like I don't have that. I don't have that problem. Um, so I don't know. Do you think it's too soon? Like if I suppose I like jump in on this, this summer, like probably next week, I'll start, you know, really modernizing stuff in like in a, in a nice, uh, totally broken Git branch. So if I start doing that this summer, I can probably ship it somewhere around December, January. It would require iOS 14. Last year, it kind of bit me to require 13 on at like week two. And so I ended up going back and reverting that and going back to requiring 12 um, like about a month later, but thirteen and twelve or thirteen and fourteen have the same compatibility matrix, so I'm not losing any devices this year. I don't know. So I, I think it is long since time for you to learn Swift. I think you are a couple of years late on when it was reasonably acceptable to learn Swift. I agree that the yeah, first couple agreed. of years was a bit aggressive to learn Swift. And I think that now you're a couple of years behind when I think it was reasonable to do so. Um, Swift UI. Uh, so I have not touched any of the, any of the new Swift UI stuff in iOS 14 and the experience I had with it in 13, I would characterize as pretty negative, but I need to throw out the caveat that I never really took the time to properly learn it. I was doing much like what you and I do with JavaScript, where I just threw some junk uh, you know, against the wall and some of it stuck and, okay, fine, that's good enough. Um, I don't think that I gave it a fair shake, but that being said, I was not doing complicated things at all. I basically only used it for static screens in peak of view, and... I think like two thirds of them I ripped out, went back to UI kit because I just couldn't get like rotation to work properly or I couldn't get something else to work properly. Things that I felt like I should have gotten for free. Now, again, very well could have been user error. Very, very well could have been user error. But it seems to me like unless you're doing something that explicitly requires Swift UI, widgets, for example, the new complication stuff, I personally still think it's a bit early for Swift UI. I think that. I might be wrong in saying that. I might be Marco of a few years ago saying, I don't want to touch Swift. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think maybe this is my own failings expressing themselves verbally, but I strongly encourage you to embrace Swift. I, I, I am pretty hesitant 
about you embracing SwiftUI. Uh, coincidentally, I think, John, you've done more SwiftUI than I have at this point because a, a lot of your Mac apps are SwiftUI, aren't they? Well, I mean, there's not a lot to, to my apps, but yeah, I, inten- I intentionally use SwiftUI for all of the UI that you actually see in Switch Class, which is not much, but <laughs> it's, it's SwiftUI, <laughs> which was a fun experiment. And a lot of, even for that limited amount that I did, like, oh, it's just one little window with a bunch of icons on it. Well, it's a weird window, right? Like, it's not a normal window. And so a lot of the the hoops that I had to jump through to make my weird window out of SwiftUI, which is decidedly not about that kind of weirdness. You know what I mean? Like, all the SwiftUI is like, oh, here you are on your phone and you want to list a bunch of vegetables. Like, it's, it's always <laughs> what it is, right? It's like, what if I want to have a window with no Chrome and it's not a rectangle and it's partially transparent and it accepts all kinds of clicks, including right clicks and has to process them successfully, but there's no first responder in SwiftUI. And like, it, you know, it, it is actually a, a fairly tricky use case. And even in even in this tiny little thing, the stuff they introduced this year, I was like, oh my God, I wish I had had that last year. That would have made stuff a lot easier. Uh, as you would expect, you know, it's year to, literally year two of SwiftUI, right? So I think it is early, but the jump from year one to year two is pretty significant in terms of like, I would have killed for that last year. And unfortunately, it's not like, oh, I can't, I'll run out and use it now. Well, no, I won't because I would be cutting off, you know, uh, Catalina people, and I'm not quite ready to do that. Although I don't, I don't know how many people are going to stay in Catalina once Big Sur comes out. But uh, what I would suggest for you, considering it's year two and there has been a big leap here, and knowing most of what overcast screens look like, I think it is plausible that you could do all of overcast's UI, except for maybe one or two tricky bits, in a fairly straightforward way with Swift UI. But I would, what I would suggest to you is make like a new dummy thing with just a bunch of fixture data that is the shape of your internal model logic, but is like not real, right? And then just make a quote-unquote mock-up UI entirely in Swift UI. It's like a non-functional app. doesn't actually play any music, but you can go through all the screens and do all the things, right? And just see where that takes you. Like you could end up like Casey and be like, I'm on screen number one and I can't get this freaking label to be where I want or it screws up when I rotate or dynamic text is weird or there's this weird drawing bug. And then you could just say, then you can just stop there. Okay, like, all right, I'll visit this next year because there's no way in hell. Because that's that's a lot of what was happening with me. I would, I'd bang my head against something and it'd be like, even me having written one Mac app at that point, I was like, I know how to do this in AppKit. I could be done in two minutes, but not in Swift UI, I don't. So I'd spend an hour banging my head against how to do this thing I already know how to do in this different API. And that's frustrating. But assuming you don't hit anything like that, make essentially the the mock-up version of Overcast with all the screens and all the text and just a bunch of fixture data, and you just wander through it with your finger and, you know, the play button does nothing and you just navigate. And, like, if you can build that, and if you build that once, like, in this empty app, if you do that and, and you realize after the first day you've got, like, half the screens on, you're like, wow, this is way faster than your UI kit. Because that is possible. That's the promise of Swift UI. It's really easy to mock stuff up real quickly that looks essentially finished. Threading the data through it is trickier, and if you hit one of those weird bugs, it's tricky, but I think that would be the least waste of your time, is to sort of do that one-off that you plan to throw away just to assess, is this a thing worth pursuing? Because if you go into the guts of your real app and try to rip a thing out and put a real view in, it's always going to be weird, and you're going to be trying to wedge it in with the data that you have, and it's not going to fit the Swift model. I would say just make a test app to assess is this the time to do it or should I wait till next year? Because I think you'll get that answer pretty quickly. I think that's very reasonable. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks. Because, I, I, like, I actually, like, I, I've done, like, little test harness projects before. Like, I uh, a couple of years ago, I basically wrote my own replacement for uh, UI split view controller. 
to humorously enough to achieve a lot of the stuff that it now supports natively. <laughs> but um, and I wrote that whole thing. I, I did the same thing then. Like I, I created a test, a sample project that ran like my custom, you know, container controller here. And it just had like, you know, blank red and blue screens for like each. Okay. The red is the detail. The, you know, the other one is the primary and, and like, it was just like solid color screens and, uh, and just like large buttons, just like, you know, push to the next screen, pop back to the previous one, stuff like that. So I think it's probably a good idea to do this too. You're right. That's basically see how far I get. You could even go all the way if you wanted to go hog and do like you now have the ability to do a top to bottom Swift UI app as in like you, there is no like main function. There's no app delegate. There's no like it's just Swift UI from top to bottom. I don't think that's going to work for you. But for your mock-up purposes, that might be a fun way to learn that because that also gives you all of, like the it's an easy place. You can have window groups and scenes and, you know, in addition to all the navigation controller push pop stuff. So I'm not that familiar with what it looks like on the on the UI kit side of things. But there's so much more this year than there was last year that doing a quick mock-up like that seems uh, like you'd learn a lot in the process, first of all. And I think as soon as you start, start to do one of your your first actual real screen with fake data, then you you know you'd find out if you're going to hit these layout issues or not because uh, it's really easy to do simple things and it's medium okay to do like a little bit tricky things and it seems like it's still you have to be a bit of a wizard to do very hard things. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very reasonable assessment. I mean, SwiftUI when it when you're doing things that it wants you to do is the work of freaking magic. It is incredible what it can do, but. When you go even slightly off the beaten path, just like you said, John, it, it gets real ugly real quick, or at least that's my experience. Plus, very similar to like Combine or RX, it's a very, very, very different approach to UI development, which doesn't make it worse by any means, but it's very different. Uh, if I were a betting man, I would guess that, Marco, you will try Swift UI, you will find it wanting, and then you will start digging into some of the last two years' worth of collection view updates because, oh boy, there's good stuff there. Because you don't really even need table view anymore. You can do everything with collection view. You can do a lot of the same Swift UI style um, uh, composable, uh, is that the word I'm looking for? I think it is, composable layouts. And and you can do incredible, incredible stuff with collection view now. And, and I think... For me, that's what I turn to. I've been, and we might talk about this in the post show, but I've been thinking about some new stuff for this summer for myself. And I was having the same debate earlier today, like, do I want to do Swift UI for this? Or do I want to do like some of it in Swift UI, some of it in UI kit? And what I came down to was, especially in the summer where I would want this to ship, you know, right as iOS 14 lands, I don't want to be trying to bite off a big Swift UI project. I want to do whatever I can UI kit and use Swift UI only where I have to. Uh, your mileage may vary, especially if you're not trying to hit any sort of urgent deadline. Um, but yeah, I, I think if I were a betting man, you'll end up using some of the really awesome new stuff in UI kit. And I, and I say that with not a drip of sarcasm. It, there's some really great stuff there, particularly around collection view. But uh, I, I don't see you going all in on Swift UI. Yeah, I mean, well, the good thing is you don't need to go all in on Swift UI. Like, you know, it, they, yep, they let you do it piecemeal, and and some kind of hybrid approach is probably what I will end up with, and it's probably what most people would still end up with these days. Um, yep. Because, but you know, like the good thing is, like, as time goes on, I'm caring less and less about the fine details of exactly how my app looks, like pixel perfectly. Because, like, what we're seeing is the way Apple is moving. Like for a while, if you would open up a, an old Mac app. Like uh, a great example, of this was the the old version of Net Newswire. As macOS changed over time, as 
the theme of macOS, the graphical theme, got tweaked over time, not to the extent that we just got with Big Sur, but like the, you know, the, the small tweaks as it kind of it lost its brushed metal and it kind of got like a little bit more flat and a little bit, you know, grayer and then occasional translucency and then lack of translucency and then translucency again. We swear it's not Vista this time, translucency. <laughs> Throughout all those changes, if you were using like the basic Mac app kit controls, the appearance of your app, like NetNewsWire, like the appearance would change with the system. Every time the system changed appearance, your app would just basically get it for free if you were using the stock stuff and not totally hacking the crap out of it or customizing stuff from scratch, right? So it, the closer you adhered to the system look, the more you would get for free whenever the system had a redesign. And you would occasionally get even new functionality from the built-in widgets in your app. Without again, without having to like rewrite everything, and often without even issuing new builds, sometimes just the old build would just inherit this stuff, um, almost always. On iOS, it never quite worked that way. On iOS, you know, we started out from this era of everything designed pixel perfect down to the pixel. The whole screen, you know, was designed perfectly, and so that as the iOS um, hardware and as the iOS theme evolved over time, apps wouldn't get it for free. They would they would make it they would give you this like you know compatibility shim that your app would run in so that your app would still continue to look old or be the size of the old phones on new hardware or new OSs because apps weren't scalable like the the way the way apps were designed the way the system frameworks were designed if you try to scale stuff without the developer like opting into it you'd break a lot of apps it seems like where we're going is closer towards where the Mac has been in that in that regard where what Apple is clearly showing us that it wants us to do and what it's doing with its apps to a large degree is push everything towards more and more stock components less customization less custom controls more just using the stock stuff without modifying it too much and then letting the platform it's running on interpret that in different ways so that way you could have like one code base and with relatively few tweaks be able to have iPhone, iPad, Mac via Catalyst now, and then maybe in the future, direct Swift UI compilation for Mac, depending on how much your app needs it and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can have components of your app running on the watch, you can have components in your app running on the TV, God knows what else Apple's going to do in the future. They're, they're obviously pushing more and more towards this, this thing of just like stock use of the components as much as possible. Right now, my app is buried under a mountain of technical debt and custom crap in the UI department because I wrote most of it five or six years ago when you had to do a lot of that stuff to get good results and and to have your app look competitive, to have it look like a nicely made app. But I think we're heading away from that now. Like We're, we're clearly heading more towards that old Mac style of doing things. And these days, breadth of having your app run on everything, having it look right on everything, or at least look decent on everything, and having it fit in on every platform is becoming more important for a lot of different audiences. So I think what I want to do is drop a lot of the custom stuff I'm doing or significantly reduce a lot of the custom stuff I'm doing and just use a bunch of stock stuff. This might even extend to dropping my custom font. I've even thought about that because that's more complicated than you might think of a decision. But anyway, uh, I, I think we're heading this direction now and there's always going to be like, you know, like the apps that have 600 iOS developers and you're like, what the heck are they all doing all day? Like 
those apps, they can make custom UIs on every platform, although they don't usually. They usually use like electronic crap somehow. But anyway, like apps that have massive teams, let them do all the pixel perfect design. But when you got an indie app like mine, that's really, I think, losing a lot of a lot of its a lot of the need to do that kind of stuff and it's certainly losing the like value of like is it really worth doing all that stuff meanwhile what customers want is to take advantage of all the new ios stuff every year i think i mostly agree with you i would say that i think a well-designed app stands out just period and not to say that you're implying otherwise or saying otherwise but i think there is still an appreciation for a really well-designed app But I think that you're right that it seems clear that Apple desires, and I suspect that we, the users, will desire breadth across platforms over, you know, pixel perfectness on each platform. And it's not that pixel perfect isn't important. It's just that it's less important than it used to be and breadth is more important than it used to be, which I think is is mostly what you're saying. But I don't know. I, I, I really think that it's... It is for the best for me anyway, as a really crummy designer and a even worse UI implementer, if (laughs) I can rely, if I can rely on stock controls and get away with it. And I think one of the nice things about Swift UI is that it makes it pretty easy to tweak a stock control without having to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, to add a corner radius, if I recall correctly, is pretty easy. You know, things, which actually isn't terrible in UI kit, but I remember early on it was real bad. Um, I don't know. It, it's, I feel like Swift UI does have some benefits there, but I, sus- I still stand by, I don't know if it's really quite ready in my personal opinion. And the other issue is if I do jump in and require iOS 14, like this winter, so, you know, probably after it's been out for maybe three months is when I might require it. Then, and, and, and by the way, that's optimistic. Like, maybe this UI redesign takes me a very long time. Maybe it's actually not until, like, next spring or summer. Who knows? But suppose it's, like, you know, December, January kind of range. And assuming iOS 14 comes out roughly when iOS has usually come out, which is usually mid-September or so, um, you know, so maybe maybe it's going to be later this year because everything's delayed because of the virus. Who knows? But assuming it comes out, you know, roughly mid September, like it usually does, I'm going to have a few months of install base. You know, if I release this stuff that requires that requires it, how long is it going to be before I can stop supporting iOS 12 and 13? I got to do it sometime, but I don't. I don't know. I don't envy you. I actually have my own problems, like I said, that I want to talk to you guys about at some point. We may or may not get to it today. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough pl- spot to be in. Speaking of not getting to things today, I spent a long time <laughs> before the show organizing the show notes, and I put, like, cut points, like, because we have so much stuff that we can't get through at all. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just divide this up and say, here's how much I think we can get through today. And then the next <laughs> section, here's how much I think we can get through today. And now i got to move all those cut points up. <laughs> Unless we're going to do a very long show. Uh, that was not my intention. We'll see what goes. All right. So let, let's start blowing through the rest to follow up. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how lightning round we can make this lightning round. Famous last words. Uh, yeah, I think I can go pretty quick. Oh, even more famous last oh, words. All right, yeah. I did it last time. Hey, I said I could do it last time. I did it. Anyway, go ahead. Ish. All right. My first way to go fast would be to cut this first item. Okay, moving on. The DTK <laughs> update. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one guess who wrote this first item, ladies and gentlemen. All right, DTK update. I did not apply for one. I believe, did we talk about on the show whether or not you guys had registered? I don't recall. I think we did. 
yeah, I don't have it yet. But you did register. John, you also registered. And did you get one? It's supposed to be coming tomorrow. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is like when you sign up for these things, if you re- actually read the little agreement, there's an NDA that says basically if you get this hardware, you're not allowed to talk about the hardware. So since none of us have it, we can talk about it. But once we have it, we can't really <laughs> say anything about the hardware. We'll still talk about on the show, I think, the process of like porting your software, but we can't really talk about the hardware itself. But that's fine because other people don't follow the rules. And so instead, <laughs> we can just link you to the show notes to this Mac Rumors article that has benchmarks of the uh, – DTK, which just looks like a little Mac Mini. I don't think anyone has really cracked it open yet. Oh, I did see one shot of the inside that showed like these little button batteries that run the, the real-time clock and everything. It's a weird piece of hardware. Um, but anyway, the, the upshot is that the benchmarks show in, in the word of this uh, Steve Trout Smith tweet, the DTK with a two-year-old iPad chip runs x86-64 code in emulation faster than the Surface Pro X runs it natively. Which is kind of sad for Microsoft, <laughs> right? So, because this really, people say, "Oh, it's like it's like uh, the 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 current iPad chip." Yeah, but it's it's a two year old thing. It's an A twelve. Granted, the Z, it's got better GPU, so on and so forth. But it's not even the A thirteen, let alone the A fourteen variant that's going to power the actual Mac. So, this two year old Apple chip is in when running x eighty six code in emulation is already faster than some other contemporary shipping ARM stuff running their own native code. Um. Anyway, you can, they can read the thing to look at more info about the benchmark. Again, benchmarks don't really matter. No no Mac is ever going to ship with the ship. It's just for the DTK. It's weird in a bunch of different ways. Um, and speaking of weird stuff, I thought this was fun to see a picture of what the Pentium 4 DTK looked like for the Intel transition and how strange and lonely this weird PC motherboard looks inside the giant cheese reader case. <laughs> so check that out if you're interested in what those things are like. So yeah, we, we will be getting them. I will be porting my apps and we'll talk about the process of porting, but we can't actually talk about the guts of the hardware or anything like that trying to figure out like how fast is the is the you know the the arm version of mac os running on this ipad chip like you know if you measure it with benchmarks you know it, it, right now you know this had to run an emulation because geekbench is not yet compiled for arm on the mac um but you know assuming that sometime soon somebody will probably run this on on one of these things that that will be running a native version somehow if that comes to exist it's probably going to be performed just like the iPad. <laughs> like it's, it's probably not going to be that noteworthy in, you know, how it runs arm code. You know what? The modern iPads are super fast. And so I bet this is going to run arm code. That's similarly designed to be a benchmark on, on Mac OS. It's probably going to benchmark just like the iPad pro does. Uh, you know, the real, I think the real thing is that this actually shows off how good Rosetta seems to be so far. And this is a beta running on like pre-release hardware. So yeah, so hardware that's slower than it's ever going to ship on. Right. Like if anything, it really shows that Rosetta is actually not probably going to be too bad of a solution for you know for the transition. I mean, I wouldn't want to run like super performance sensitive stuff on it, but if Rosetta runs this well on this pre-release OS on this pre-release hardware, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's basically going to be fine. Like this is this is running it as if you had a kind of an old Mac at home, right? And that's what it's going to be like. Like fast forward a year when the real Macs come out, they'll be faster than this. When you run your software on it, and it's not and the software hasn't been ported, it'll be like, ah, oh, you know, this feels like software running on my my current Mac. Probably if you don't get a new Mac every year, so it's all good news in the performance front. No one has had anything bad to say about I mean about this uh, about the DDK hardware. It's all it's all upside from here. Uh, and speaking of porting stuff, I did. I've already ported my two apps, ported in quotes, because, of course, I don't have any ARM hardware to test it on. But even with the current Xcode, you can build for ARM 
I can't run that binary, but I, I trust Xcode when it tells me that it successfully built it. But just getting to the point where you build if you're using any stuff that needs to change or any libraries. And bottom line is I wasn't. I, I had to do more changes for Big Sur than I did for uh, anything having to do with ARM because I'm mostly doing just standard stuff. A bunch of stuff is deprecated in Big Sur, and I had to mess with that. And you know, I, I made some tweaks to a few of my things to you know conditionally apply some new APIs. Uh, when I'm running on Big Sur, but uh, but yeah, ARM was uh, the, the most consequential amount of work I had to do for ARM was figuring out the build settings to figure out how to make it actually build <laughs> for ARM. Like, it had nothing to do with the code, it just to do with fighting Xcode. So, I mean, granted, my apps are very, very simple. So, this is not representative of, for example, what it's going to take to port Photoshop or something. But, you know, no news is good news as far as I'm concerned. That is excellent. We also have some news about uh, running Windows on ARM-based Macs, and it appears like that's not going to happen, or at least not legally anyway. I'm not. That's not how I read this, right? So, I mean, we know that, you know, uh, there's, there's no technical reason why Microsoft and Apple can't get together and make sure that ARM Macs can boot Windows. But we also know that Apple didn't demo it, and you can't currently do it for a variety of reasons, some of which have to do with the specifics of the hardware and the DTK, which is the only ARM mac thing that exists uh the, i think the page size is wrong but more importantly microsoft only microsoft unlike uh, windows for x86 where microsoft works hard to make sure windows can run on any weird piece of pc hardware they don't do that with windows for arm like it's not it's not like windows which grew up in the sort of open pc world where its job was to like i don't care whatever weird vendor pc that they slap together windows will figure out how to boot and run on it arm is spe- windows for arm is specifically tailored to the exact arm hardware that windows says it supports and not including that hardware is anything that apple makes and so the statement from microsoft spokesperson in this verge article says um, microsoft only licenses windows 10 on arm to oems uh, and they asked if they were, uh, were going to change this policy to allow windows to run arm based macs microsoft said we have nothing further to share at this time which is not the answer you give if you're categorically ruling it out. In fact, it's the answer you give if you're currently fighting with Apple about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, so practically speaking, no, you can't. But I still maintain hope that these two companies can figure out a way to make it happen. Because I think Apple wants it to happen. And I think Microsoft knows Apple wants it to happen and has a tiny, teeny bit of leverage and are using that leverage to presumably get something they want, probably having to do with Office 365 subscriptions or something <laughs> through the App Store. Well, I, I, I think the the page size thing, like, like you know, so the way memory is mapped, it's, you know, it's, everything is done via these, you know, pages of memory, and on most systems, most x86 systems, it's been four kilobytes, and on these are Macs, it's officially documented to be 16. And somewhere, I somewhere, uh, either Apple or somebody actually said, Windows can't run because of this. Like it can't run on Mac on on the uh, on, on the, the Apple. DTK specifically is what right. they said. And they also said, I think they said that these issues will not. You know, it, it, this, there won't be the same issue with the real Mac hardware. Whether that means the page size will change on the real Mac hardware, or whether they think they will have sorted out the issue with Microsoft, I don't know. But I recall hearing something like that. Oh, that's interesting because I, I I interpreted the documentation on the like the transition guide for WDC and everything. It sounded like they were saying that all our Macs will have 16 kilobyte pages, and you know, period. So that and that's why this basically is can't work until uh, Microsoft adds support for that. 
But Apple being Apple, they're, they're not going to tell us what our Mac hardware is going to be like. They just vaguely allude to things that are weird about the DTK that will prevent Windows from running it. And again, this statement from Microsoft doesn't say, oh, well, there's some technical incompatibility and we just make it happen. They said, we have nothing further to share at this time, which is the total corporate speak for this is a thing that may or may not happen, but it's in like, we have nothing to announce at this time it means they're still talking to Apple about it. If they had stopped talking to Apple about it, they would have made a more definitive statement. So I, my fingers are still crossed. What would people do with Windows on ARM, like on the Mac? Like, isn't the whole point of running Windows to run the vast library of new and very much old x86 software for Windows on your Mac? Like, is there that much demand for the other aspects of Windows that you'd want to run Windows for ARM? On the Mac? I mean, I, I bet a lot of people run just the Microsoft apps, Outlook, and you know, you know, all the the Excel and Microsoft, all the Office applications in their Windows form, share interacting with SharePoint and Teams, and like the whole big uh, Office suite. That's why what, do you bring up that word? I know, but that's <laughs> what Microsoft wants everyone to do. Uh, and the other thing is, I talked about this a million times. It's still not clear that this is going to happen, but it, it is still a possibility that uh, you know, once Apple gets off x86 eventually windows starts going in that direction too and the you know basically everybody moves to arm like eventually in many years in the future so it's not ridiculous that that could eventually happen uh it's not happening now for sure so you're right marco you get this windows based arm like yeah i can boot into windows what can you do with it well i can run these microsoft applications <laughs> but I, like i think a lot of people that's all they do all day is they run the office suite of applications and you know and then they download chrome and then that's it. And they're, they're <laughs> all, you know, so I don't know. I, I, I want it to happen. It's not going to suddenly make my x86 games run. It's not going to make a gaming PC. But I, I'm i kind of holding out hope that the whole sort of PC world moves in slow motion to ARM uh, over the next many years, just because we've had enough of uh, x86. Moving on, uh, Rosetta, tell me about when code is translated and what's going on there. Yeah, this is a... Uh, a bit of uh, follow up on the exact nature of Rosetta. We talked about it doing t- going through great pains to be able to do all the things, so that like even you can even load Intel plugins and everything like that. Um, there are limitations to what they've decided to implement, and limitations that they didn't implement for the PowerPC transition, I think, which caused them a lot of pain. And I think to learn from. Uh, but before we get to that, the first thing, is that the code translation thing, where you know it'll translate statically your application on install or on first launch or whatever, and then it keeps that code around so it doesn't have to do it again. That translated code also participates in the code signing process too, which is nice. So the signature will encompass the translated code so you're not more susceptible to hacking just because you have it translated in theory if they did their job right. So that's that's going the extra mile in security. Uh, but unlike, I think, maybe some person who has a better memory than me can correct me, unlike, I think, uh, 68K and PowerPC, there's no mixed mode. You can't if you are a, a, a Intel process running on ARM in translation, you can't load ARM plugins and vice versa. Like in a single process, you can't have the two types of code mixing together with each other, right? But you can load plugins across architectures as long as you use XPC, uh, Apple's cross-process communication thing, where you spawn another process. So say you're an ARM, native ARM Mac, but you want to load a plugin that's Intel only, like it's a binary Intel only plugin. You can do that if you do it in a separate process and communicate through it through XPC. You just can't do it in the same process. My vague recollection is that Apple did support mixed mode, which is an amazing feat if you think about it. Like your your app is running one instruction set and your plugin is running the other, and they're both in the same memory space, but one of them is being translated, right? But that is tricky and uh, adds all sorts of complications that 
they just assumed a void. So I think they didn't do it for Intel, and they're not doing it again for this one. Big Sur on existing systems. I have put Big Sur on an external drive for my iMac Pro. I attempted to do it on on the internal, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I couldn't resize my existing container. I get my terminology wrong. But apparently, even though it's a 4 gig drive, and I'm only using like half of that right now, I couldn't get disk utility to resize it. Maybe I could have done some command line jockeying to do it, but I just gave up and put it on an external. And then on my uh, shiny new MacBook Pro, it is on the external. And I did, I was very thankful to see Daniel Jowkett's tweet that warned us not to put it on a, well, j- jump in and save me here, John. What is the normal <laughs> way you used to do it? Yeah, like, so one of the advantages of APFS is get within a given APFS container, you can just make volumes all day long. You can just keep adding volumes. Each one of them can be the full size of the container. You can add 100 of them. It doesn't matter. Well, I don't know. There's probably some limit. But making volumes inside an APFS container is cheap because they share all the space with each other. So you might think, and I think we did this with PathOS, is if you have APFS, oh, I'll just make a new container, and then I'll install the new operating system on that new, uh, or make a new volume within this container, and I'll install the new operating system on the new volume. And you don't have to worry about partitioning it or anything like that. It's just like, oh, yeah, you all get all the space. And then you, they'll just fight over who actually gets the space, right? But then when you're done with that OS, you can just delete that volume, freeing up all its space and returning it to the other thing. No resizing partitions, no none of that stuff. It's all dynamic, right? Big Sur, I'm sorry the show is getting to you too late if you're thinking of, if you're listening and thinking of installing Big Sur. Do not do this with Big Sur. Do not take an existing APFS container and quickly make a new volume in it and say, great, I'm going to install Big Sur there. Because if you do that, the limitation is that any other versions of macOS in that same container, according to Apple, uh, will no can no longer get system updates. So that's bad. Like you, like I don't know even why know why they allow you to do this. Like basically, if you have Catalina and you make a volume and you install Big Sur, you're not getting any more Catalina updates on that particular Catalina. I don't even know if you can reverse it by deleting the Big Sur volume. Um, and I, honestly, I don't even know why it's possible. Also, Apple says that APS containers with non-default allocation block sizes aren't currently supported. But if you know what that is, presumably you know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> so what Casey was trying to do is, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the easy thing and make a you know Big Sur container in my existing uh, container, uh, Big Sur volume. I keep saying container instead of volume. The name nomenclature is annoying. I'm not going to make a new Big Sur volume in my existing container. I'm going to make a new partition, like old school, old fashioned, separate section of the disk. And to do that, especially with disk utility, it's cranky about like, oh, if you have data and I can't all squish it into one place. And I don't know what the limitations are, but it's limited. Depending on how much free space you have and where things are arranged, sometimes it says, nope, I can't partition your disk. Because in theory, if you could partition your disk in that second partition, you can make a brand new APFS container and put a single volume in it and do Big Sur into that. Never mind that Big Sur makes umpteen volumes on its own. Uh, there's a reason for this, and maybe we'll get to it later, depending on how much time we have, because Big Sur makes a bunch of changes to APFS. It makes a bunch of changes that are not compatible with Catalina. So if you're thinking of trying out Big Sur, give it its own partition for sure, but to be safe, give it its own empty disk with nothing else on it that you won't be you won't care if it screws it up in some way. Or just don't run the beta. That's also a way to do it. It's so pretty, though. It's so pretty. Wait, what? We'll get oh, it. Casey it. really likes it. We'll get to that later. Oh, oh no. <laughs> don't don't hate on me, old man. It oh, looks oh, good. No. Hey, it's just oh. Marco saying, oh, no. Not me. I have different things to say. You should you should center them so they're easier to listen to. Uh, God. Mm. Well, yeah, the, the dialogues are terrible. The dialogues are terrible, and notifications are not talking about it now. The we'll get there. Yep. 
All right, we'll get there. <laughs> we don't have to do this uh, thing because we already talked about the bootleg stuff. Excellent. Well, I will say thank you, though, to all the people who have signed up for uh, for ATP membership. Uh, we really appreciate it. There's no timetable on the bootleg, obviously, but it is forthcoming. Coming it soon. It will happen. After I rewrite my entire app in SwiftUI. Oh, it's never coming. I take <laughs> it all back. Definitely before that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you, someone put in here a, a point that is worth making. Uh, if and when the bootleg does appear, it will have curses in it because we're not going to edit it. Like, that's the whole point. It's not edited. So if you really are dying to hear Casey curse with that bleeps, which honestly I think hey. is less less funny than with the bleeps, uh, <laughs> then you'll get that as part of the bootleg. ADP.fm slash join. The, the bleeps are funnier than actual curse words. In so my that's, what, that's what I think, too. But unedited is unedited. So you get what you get. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Let's move right along and let's continue talking about WWDC. And I, I assume we left off where the top of this document left. Uh, I, I shuffled things around. Out. I tried to, I did my best. All yeah. right. Well, I appreciate it. You shouldn't have done homework, but I appreciate the fact that you have. Uh, messages in Big Sur specifically. Uh, screen sharing is still there, John. Yeah. Someone tweeted at me early on like, oh, screen sharing is gone. No, it's just hidden where it's always been hidden. It's always weird to find. You have to like click on the, the icon of the person you're talking to, but it's there. You can do screen sharing and messages. I mean, I didn't actually try it, but the feature still exists. They, they ported it to the Catalyst app. So I was very excited about that. Although, unfortunately, because it is a Catalyst app now, the AppleScript dictionary is gone, which some people are upset about because AppleScript is on its way out and there's no good replacement except for shortcuts, which is not really a replacement. But anyway, uh, that's one thing to note. Also, Anders Norberg uh, said that you can use Command K in the Finder, you know, the thing that brings up Connect to Server dialog. And if you enter an Apple ID, it will send an invite, which is not true. Because I'm like, what? that can't possibly be true. I tried it. I'm like, it's it's not true, right? But if you do VNC colon slash slash someone's Apple ID, it will launch the screen sharing app and screen share to that Apple ID, which is almost as good. So you can't just enter an Apple ID, right? And, you know, by the way, an Apple ID is these days, unless you're still hanging on to an old one they all look like email addresses so it's weird it's not like a it's not clearly not treating it as a as a url because vnc colon slash slash you know jdo at example.com does not say look up the jdo example.com apple id that's not that it tries you know anyway it works so if you want to try that you can do it but wow. uh, we'll put in the show notes the full path to the screen sharing app because it's, you say screen sharing app my mac doesn't have a screen sharing app it does there's lots of stuff hidden in system library core services applications and the screen sharing app is one of them. And apparently it understands how to find people based on their Apple ID. So try it next time you're trying to help somebody out with something. They have to be on a Mac, obviously. Although the VNC nature of the URL means you can probably connect to them if they have a VNC server. But that gets complicated. Yep. I use uh, Command K constantly to do this sort of thing. You know, VNC into my other Macs or, and so on and so forth. Uh, to do SMB colon slash slash to get to Samba shares on my Synology. Yep. This is a useful tip. I had no idea that you could do it with an Apple ID. That's very cool. It's easier in messages. Like, because you'll be messaging, because you're probably using this for tech support. So if that other person is on a Mac and they're on a reasonably modern Mac, message with them. And then while you're in messages, you can find the screen sharing thing by clicking on the icon of the person. And it says, ask to share their screen and you'll be off to the races. Behind the scenes, it's just going to launch a screen sharing app anyway. One delightful thing that came from me putting Big Sur on both my machines, uh, other than looking at how beautiful it is, right, Marco, is that uh, when you do that, it seems to, from what I can tell, change for the system in its entirety, that it brings back the boot noise. And I guess this is ne- this is optional in Big Sur or optional in Catalina? 
Um, in Catalina, you can do it with that NVRAM hack thing that I did on my laptop that a lot of people did. Um, mm-hmm. But in Big Sur, it is now an actual checkbox in system preferences that you can turn on. There you go. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and, and I did mess with it with the NVRAM thing. I forget when it went away. Did you Did you have the exact date? I like, thought it was Catalina that it went away. It went away. It wasn't an OS thing. It was hardware-based. It went away with all of the 2016 wonderful redesigns of the uh, MacBook Pro and then all the desktops <laughs> that followed after that. So the, the iMac Pro didn't have it. Uh, I think anything with the um, T2 did, uh, and, and even the T1 um, didn't have I don't it know about that. I mean, this is why it's confusing for people because a lot of people are like, "Oh, thank God, I've always wanted to turn that off." And I was like, "It's been off for years, but it's only like it's only on hardware. If you buy a new Mac frequently, like it, it start it, the way you would experience it going away is you would buy a new Mac, right? That's the only way you would experience it. it didn't go away on existing Macs, right? So if you have an old Mac, it never went away for you. Uh, and now you see this checkbox, and you're like, finally, a way to get rid of it. But if you've been buying a new Mac every year or something. It went away for you a while ago, and now it's back. Who would do that? Yeah. So, so there's a... I did the the NVRM thing to turn it back on just because I like the bong, right? Uh, but when I installed... <laughs> install, installed Big Sur... Yeah, the only bong I ever liked. Uh, when I installed Big Sur... I, uh, I, I, I checked the checkbox. I mean, I don't know. I forget if it was checked by default. I had already messed with the NVRM thing manually. so I, I, I But I made sure it was on again in Big Sur. And then, like, when I rebooted Big Sur, it made the bong sound, but it was, like, at maximum volume. So loud that it was distorting the tiny, terrible little speaker on my Mac Pro. Oh, and no. even it wasn't distorting it, it was too loud. Like, not that that speaker is that loud, but you don't want to be startled at literally maximum volume. Like, how the, how the hell did that change? Is there a volume control? I did a bunch of Googling. A bunch of old Macs did have, like, a system volume thing in NVRAM. My Mac doesn't, but it doesn't matter. The system volume is correct. I couldn't figure out how to make it quiet again. So I unchecked the checkbox. I had to go back to Silent Bong. I think it's probably just a Big Sur beta bug. Like, I think if I was just in Catalina, I wouldn't have to worry about that. But most of the time, I'm rebooting. I'm rebooting into Big Sur, so that's when I hear the bong. So I've got some startup sound issues. But anyway, I'm glad there's a (laughs) checkbox for it. But, but, Paul, of all the weird things to give a checkbox to, it's like, like, make up your mind. Are they going to have a startup chime or are they not? You got rid of the Happy Mac and you didn't have an option to bring it back. It just went away. The startup chime went away several years ago on new hardware, but... Now it's back. I mean, I suppose it serves some diagnostic purpose, but in general, people love to be able to silence that because, it, like, many librarians, uh, you know, say that they are glad that uh, it is silent on new Macs because you know, people are restarting their computers in the middle of the library and constantly going bong. So, well, that took a turn I was not expecting. <laughs> are you part of their crack marketing team, John? We just didn't know it. <laughs> not, like, uh, think about this. Like, of all of all the things to, to give options for, we're gonna we're gonna change the GUI of this. Of like, I think it's like in the general preferences or something, and we're gonna put a checkbox for the startup chime. So weird. I wonder if that'll go, it'll last till release. That's all right. All right. So, what version is Big Sur? Is it is it ten dot sixteen or eleven dot oh? What's what's the story here? I, I thought in last show, it's like, oh, don't tell us because by the time you tell us, like we'll have already known because we'll you know because that was we recorded on the day of the keynote and you know we didn't know anything yet, but you know I figured by the next day we'll have this all sorted out. It turns out the situation is way more complicated than I thought it would be for <laughs> reasons that are not quite explicable. Um, so your name doesn't give you any good info other than. Uh, it's Darwin 20.0 instead of 19.5, which is what Catalina was. If you do SW underscore vers to give software version on and you're running Big Sur, you get product version 10.16. Uh, and if you look at the about screen, as we saw in the keynote, sure enough, you get 
All right. Well, that's like, okay, well, fine. Maybe the real version is 10.16, but like they just put 11.0 in the about box. It's just the marketing version, right? Then you go into Xcode and you look at your macOS deployment target and you can choose macOS 10.16 or you can choose macOS 11. <laughs> and that's what? that's where I started to get real confused and like, okay, what what's going on here, right? So a lot of people have been experimenting with this. Uh, I forget who this was. Maybe this is uh, Guy Rambo. Said he built an app with a deployment target set to 11.0. Built a Mac app with a deployment target set to 11.0, and you run it on Big Sur running on an Intel Mac. Like this is not the DTK or anything. You run it. You, you build it on, on an Intel Mac, and you run it on an Intel Mac on Big Sur, and you get an alert that says you can't use this version of this application with this version of macOS. You have macOS 10.16. This application requires macOS 11.0 or later. You just built it on that machine. It's an <laughs> Intel app. You pick, basically, you were able to pick a deployment target. I mean, I guess that makes some sense. Can you, have you been ever to do this in, like, in Xcode before? Pick a deployment target that is newer than the one you're building on? I don't think. I mean, I don't, I've only ever done it for, for iOS, so it didn't really apply. Like, usually you'd go the other way. You're like, okay, my deployment target, like, my deployment target for front and center is 10.12, because there's no reason I can't reach back that far, right? But they, you pick the deployment target that's newer than the machine you built it on, right? So the homebrew folks have been looking into this because they've got to deal with this stuff as well. And there's a, a GitHub thread that we'll link in the show notes. Someone said, uh, I'm told that for Intel, SWVers reports 10.16. But if you're on the, on Apple Silicon, it reports 11.0. None of us have our DDK, so we can't confirm that. At the time this was written, nobody had any DDK. Uh, Fraser Hess said he confirmed this with someone in a lab. In a later beta, 11.0 will get reported to apps, but apps built on 10.15 and earlier SDKs will get the 10.16 reported to them. So that's saying if you build it on the 10.15 SDK, like if you, you know, like if you use that bundle of libraries and everything to build your thing, then your app will get 10.16 reported. But apparently in a later beta, you'll get 11.0. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where we stand here. Clearly, the the Big Sur beta that we're all running reports 10.16. Clearly, it really is 10.16, but clearly Xcode says you can target 11.0, whatever the hell that is. Uh, and since we don't have our DTKs, and even after we get them, we probably can't say, they may report 11.0 from SWVerse. So it is all very confusing. Uh, I'm sure it will get sorted out in some reasonable way. Apple seems very committed to the 11.0 thing, so I feel like that's where we're going, regardless of any weird 10.16 things that might be there for backward compatibility with you know apps built against 10.15 SDK. Uh, and the one minor point related to this, which has come up in the discussion in the last week, is what happens next year? Do we get 11.1 or 12.0? 11.1. Hmm. I had just assumed 11.1 until I heard lots and lots of people talking about it. I'm like, well, most of the people in this world are used to iOS, which doesn't do that. iOS does, you know, 13.0, 13.0.1. Like, and then the next year, they go to 14, right? That, that's what iOS has always been doing. So I'm like, well... Just because macOS did 10.0, 10.1, 10.2 doesn't mean that it has to keep doing that. Maybe they do 11 this year and maybe they do 12 next year. So I I am, have no idea what they're going to do, regardless of this whole 10.16 business. I feel like that will get resolved. It would make some sense to make macOS do the 12, 13, 14. I think that would be potentially a mistake because, like I said, iOS 14 is already the numbers are getting big. Like, do we really want to be running iOS 36? It's kind of weird. Whereas the, if you do eleven dot something, you got a long runway before you run out of elevens. I don't know. All right, tell me about APFS time machine and booting changes. 
So here's all the stuff. I'm so sad they didn't have a file system session at WWC where they talk about this stuff, but they didn't. But guess what? File system stuff changed in Big Sur a lot in ways that have an impact on your life to the point where, as I think everyone who has run Big Sur has found out, when you reboot back into Catalina, Catalina does not know what the hell to make of, <laughs> of the stuff you just put Big Sur on. It will complain in the finder that it, that some that some file system is incompatible. Casey, if you've done this, have you seen a little volume? You pro- do you have volumes on your desktop? You probably don't, do you? I uh, well, I, uh, no, I don't actually. Uh, only uh, removable ones. But yeah, every time I boot back into Catalina on my laptop, which is the one that I did the partition dance on, and so it can still see one of the you know one or more of the thirty four <laughs> volumes that's or, or containers that's created during the Big Sur installation process. Every single time, it complains and moans that there's an incompatibility or something. I forget exactly what the dialogue is. I think I tweeted about it but. it's an incompatible file system it's basically saying i don't under one of these volumes i i can't i don't understand the format it's newer than i can handle which is absolutely true like it's just working as designed like they, they that's why file systems have version numbers so that the the operating system can know when it's looking at a file system that it doesn't know how to handle and therefore not touch it and complain to you about it incompatible disk this disk uses features that are not supported on this version of mac os totally true good very good error message there um do you see though <laughs> Do you see a mounted volume called update? I believe so. Let me look. Hold on. I do have it booted. So just give me one second. We'll put in some Jeopardy music or something. Uh, <laughs> what do I have here? Uh, oh, no, wait. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm in Big Sur. That doesn't help us. Never mind. Uh, I would have to reboot. No. If, you, if you're in Catalina and you and you have your Big Sur disconnected, you will see this random volume called update. You're like, what the hell is that? Is that, is that malware? Am I like, is someone hacking me here? <laughs> Why is it, Did I leave a disk image mounted? Why is there a volume called update? So it's it's all very confusing, and it would have really helped if there was a session explaining all this, because some of the features are pretty cool. Now, the first thing to know about Big Sur and uh, Apple on uh, macOS on ARM and all that stuff is that for you know predictable reasons, basically the process of booting and updating the Mac on ARM is very much like it is on the iPad and the iPhone, because why wouldn't it be? Like it's you know that's the hardware, that's the system they have. There is actually a WWDC session vaguely related to this, which is uh, explore the new system architecture of Silicon Mac, uh, Apple Silicon Macs. We'll put the link in the show notes to that one. Lots of interesting stuff there. There are many more technical details that they didn't go into related to the file system. One of which is that, you know, we know in Catalina, like the system, like the OS volume was read only, right? And there was a separate data volume with your stuff on it. And then it would sort of merge them together for you to protect the system volume. Well, in iOS and iPad OS, it's even more strict than that, and so it is, too, on Big Sur, uh, on all hardware, not just ARM hardware. The boot volume is not just read-only. It is now what they call sealed. It is a cryptographically signed system volume where every single byte of data has associated checksums. So I've t- we've talked in the past about data integrity and data rot or whatever. Well, one volume that is not going to experience data rot and not a, without being detected is a Big Sur uh, operating system volume because it's read-only, first of all. And if any of the bits get flipped, it will know because every piece of data and metadata is checksummed all the way up to the very top checksum and it's cryptographically signed. Basically, the running system will know, is any part of this op- has any part of this operating system been modified in any way, either through corruption or a malicious thing or whatever? So that's great. That's great for security. Um, and it's great for, you know, Apple's first foray into actual data integrity. The bad thing is the only volume that you can do that to right now 
is the system volume. And that doesn't have any of your data on it. Like it's just for the operating system that doesn't change, right? So that's kind of a shame. Um, they basically boot off of a, a read-only snapshot of that because APFS supports snapshots. The updating process is just like it is on your phone. I'm assuming your phone and your iPad already do this, but uh, practically speaking and technically speaking, the best and cleanest way to do an update with APFS is let the system run off a snapshot that's read-only and then do your update in an, essentially another so like you would you know the update system can mount the volume again from someplace other than that snapshot in read write mode and put the update there like write all the update files write you know write essentially a new cryptographic cryptographically sealed volume right the old volume your system is running off is not changing every single byte of it is exactly as it's running off a snapshot but then the update process in the background while it's doing the update is building and signing a new sealed volume and then when you reboot, it just does a switcheroo and say, now we're going to boot from that sealed volume. And you can verify the signatures and integrity of that volume. So you either get all the update or none of the update. And you can be sure that the update didn't screw up, that, you know, there wasn't like a bad sector. No, well, whatever they call them in SSDs. That there wasn't some bit flipped or cosmic ray or something, right? So <laughs> the update process is much more reliable. It can happen in the background without disturbing your current system. And that's great. And speaking of things using snapshots, Time Machine, I believe, since Catalina, I forget when they did this, does it back up from a snapshot. So it doesn't have like the uh, painting the Golden Gate Bridge problem where you start painting the Golden Gate Bridge and by the time you get to the other side, you have to start over again because <laughs> the, the salt has, has rotted away the painting. Was, I guess it takes you so long. Time Machine and HFS Plus would essentially say, I'm about to, up to back up your four terabyte volume, so I'm going to start reading files it would read files and it's reading files and it's writing to the backup disk and it's reading files and it would take hours to do that and by the time it's done anything that happened in the hours that it's been running hasn't been backed up like depending on where it happened in the disk because it's walking it's like painting the golden gate bridge it's walking it's going painting 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 and then someone puts a dirty footprint where you already painted oh now you got to repaint that but if someone puts a dirty footprint before uh you know ahead of where you've painted so far you'll eventually get to that so you have no idea what happened your time machine backup is just like this temporal temporal smear of things that <laughs> happened on your disc and time machine would do like hey let me let me just go back to the beginning again and catch up okay let me go back to the beginning again and catch up like you can keep doing that but you'll always be behind by some window because you're trying to back up essentially a live file system that's being modified when you take a snapshot in apfs one of the great features is like look this is a point in time snapshot of what the disc looks like Nothing is changing in this snapshot. I'm going to back up this snapshot. This is exactly how the entire disk was at point X in time. And no matter how long that backup takes, it's going to be internally consistent, right? So it's been doing that for a while. Last year, they announced that there was a way to do efficient deltas between snapshots. So you could take one snapshot and then an hour later take a second snapshot and you could efficiently say, what's the difference between these two snapshots without like walking over the into every single file? And to be, you know, that's a big problem with Time Machine. It's always got to say, what's changed since the last time I backed up? Because I need to know what to put in this new backup, right? APFS last year got a feature that made it efficient for you to get that answer. This year, I think possibly the Time Machine is finally using that. So the first thing is that for the first time, Time Machine can back up to an APFS disk. This has not been possible before. Catalina and, and Prior can only do a Time Machine backup to an HFS Plus disk. HFS Plus has all those features for like hard links to directories and all sorts of mumbo jumbo that makes Time Machine work. APFS didn't have those features. APFS still doesn't have those features. How exactly it's working under the covers, I don't know. I've just been experimenting with it a little bit. 
if first of all, when you back up to an APFS disk, you can't just format a disk as APFS or like take an existing APFS disk and say, oh, back up to that one. When you want to choose an APFS disk to be a time machine target, time machine says, oh, great. Well, can I erase that for you? And you'd be like, why do you need, why do you need to erase it? Can't you just, aren't you, it's empty. Like for me, it was an empty disk. I had a new empty disk. Why can't you just back up to it? Oh, and the other thing is the first thing I tried my old Mac OS 10 reviewer trick is you just make a second volume on the same disk and you make time machine back up to that, which is terrible. It's not a real backup, right? And Time Machine used to yell at you and say, you know, you're backing up the disk to itself, right? It, you know, and but I'd be like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not actually making a backup. I just want to turn on Time Machine so I can take screenshots for a review, right? You can't do that now. I made a new APFS volume on, you know, on my big serve volume. And I went to say, okay, I'm going to select that as my backup disk in Time Machine. And Time Machine wouldn't even list it as a selection. It's like, I don't even see that. That's not even an option. I thought they'd finally got smart and said, don't let people back up to their own, to the same disk because that's stupid. But that's not why. Time Machine can only back up to an APS volume with the role backup. APFS has this concept of volume roles. An example of a volume role is read-only system volume, recovery volume. Uh, there's a volume used for broadband updates. You can see where the, a lot of these volume roles came from, not from the Mac, right? Um, it, it, and, like, I forget where there's a bunch of other ones for, like, firmware updates, system software updates, pre-boot. There's this whole system where it can boot a miniature version of Mac OS so you can have more stuff running uh, on the like the login screen before you decrypt the disk. Anyway, one of the volume roles is backup. So basically, you need to make a new APFS volume whose role is backup. When you just go to Disk Utility and make an APS volume, it's not a backup volume. What's different about a backup volume? I don't know. Something's different. They're weird. <laughs> when I made one, I tried to go over it to the, to the command line, and it was like, operation not permitted. And anytime I tried to do anything, you try to run ls in a directory, it's like, nope. What if I do it as root? It's like, nope. Uh, sometimes you can poke around in it. I think it's still using hard links somewhere because the link count is high, but it only shows one volume. I think it might be using snapshots, and each snapshot is mounted as its own separate volume. Anyway. There's a bunch of weird technical stuff going on in here. We will link in the show notes Apple's new APFS file system reference, which gives you some clue about the capabilities. You can look at all the different volume roles. It's really a programmer's reference to say, like, what are the values for all the constants and what bits are flipped in the bit fields for each volume role thing. And one paragraph of text about how sealed volumes work and what the checksum data structures are and how many different SHA variants it uses for the checksums. And it's very complicated, but there was no sort of session explaining all of this. So I had to... I didn't want to go too far into this, but I, I, I'm trying to figure out basically, are you using uh, snapshot diffing deltas, you know, the feature from last year, to make backups fast? So I made a backup in Big Sur to a time machine volume, and then I duplicated one, like, one megabyte image. So I've, now I've made a change to the disk, and now I want, I want to run a time machine backup again. And in theory, obviously stuff's gone on in the background, so who knows, but in theory it has at least one file that needs to back up. I did a second, you know, a second backup. I did one backup and it was clean. I did the second backup and it completed in one minute and 20 seconds, which may not sound fast to you, but I would encourage you on the Mac of your choice right now that's not running Big Sur, do a time machine backup <laughs> and just let it finish, right? And the second it finishes, do a second time machine backup, which you would think is basically a no-op backup, right? Especially if it's working off snapshots and you haven't been doing anything. Obviously, some files have changed, but it should, you think it would, like, that's as fast as a backup's ever going to be. In fact, do it five times. Do a time machine backup, wait for it to finish, do another, do another, do another. See how fast you can make a time machine backup in Catalina. I tried to run this experiment before the show and it was taking a very long time to do a backup. Like, I just did, the fastest one I could get was five minutes. 
Does that mean that Big Sur is using the APVest diffing? No, it doesn't. I could have, you know, it's a new disk. It doesn't have any data on it. Isn't, the FS event log isn't very long. Like, it could be doing everything the old-fashioned way. So the jury's still out on that. Anyone at Apple, I asked on Twitter and got no response. If there's someone at Apple who can tell me definitively if Time Machine is using the inter-snapshot efficient diffing mechanism to make Time Machine faster, let me know. I'm not obviously brave enough to try it on my real system with my real data. Uh, but so far, it seems like there's a possibility that Time Machine might be faster. And even if it's not, I do like the idea of backing up the APFS in one of these special volumes that's read-only and has all these snapshotting features and everything. Not going to help me backing up to my Synology, unfortunately, because that is over SMB and is decidedly not APFS on the other end of it. But anyway, I I'm, was excited to learn through various other people's you know, tweets and articles that there are a bunch of changes related to this. We'll link in the show notes the Eclectic Light Company. Uh, uh, is it? Yeah, Eclectic Light Company, I think. Howard Oakley is the person who runs it. Uh, he had two articles about this, about the backups and the sealed system volumes. So check those out if you're interested. Do you feel better having some APFS news? I know you were yearning for it. I do. I mean, like this has been the slowest, <laughs> the slowest thing ever. After they introduced it, it's like, when are they going to make Time Machine? But I think I talked about it on the show before WWC, and the answer seems to be that yeah, they did a bunch of APFS related work to Time Machine. So I'm excited to change all my local backup volumes to APFS, even though they're spinning disks and it's going to be gross because APFS is bad on spinning disks. But if the inter snapshot diffing is fast, I'll take it because it's certainly not fast now backing up to HFS plus. I can tell you that. We haven't done Ask ATP in forever and a day. I'm inclined to say let's do some, especially since if you indulge me in, in the after show, that's going to take a while. But I disagree. Notice in the show notes what it says. <laughs> where does it say where? It says, oh, go to Apple Platform Unification. Go to. Christ. You know, go to. Uh, go yes, to fail. You put a go to mm-hmm. statement in the show notes. Yes, I've done this multiple times in case he continues not to follow him. He's a bad basic interpreter. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> Why wouldn't you just copy and paste? Because Why are you like, doing I have these thing? long sections and I had to put dividers. Like we went through like a quarter of follow up and then I had the stop here. And then I would go through like a, a couple of topics. And then I say stop here. And there's, there's more WWDC if you keep scrolling. There always will be. Right. right but fine. I want to skip down to a this topic, which just touches on a bunch <laughs> of stuff that Marco talked about earlier. And I think it's, you know, a lot of people have been asking about it. I want to talk about it before, you know, time goes too long. First, exclamation, exclamation, one, one, one. Yes. All right, John, tell me about Apple platform unification. So it seems clear to anyone that's paying any bit of attention that everything seems to be muddied. Everything's getting squished into everything else. What's the trash compactor from Star Wars? Well, I don't even remember what it's called. It's, 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 that's it. happening, right? Yeah, trash and compactor. So, uh, and, and, oh, I assumed it had some... Garbage measure. Yeah, I, I assumed it had some ridiculous name or some world that it was a part of. It doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, the point being that everything seems to be getting squished together. So what what's going on here? Well, this it gets to what Marco was talking about earlier, about like, what's what's the deal? With, I mean, all the stuff he was talking about. Um, what should I write my new... UI in uh, what uh, what's happening in the world of applications in terms of do they do custom controls or do they do use all the standard stuff and what is the nature of the standard stuff does it support all sorts of dynamic type and sizing is it not pixel perfect does you are you trying to use standard controls so you can follow along with Apple's changes in fashion uh, and on the more technical level I think there still is this question mostly unanswered by anything Apple has said which is you've got a lot of APIs Apple for a lot of different platforms. What's your guidance on what 
people should do. And Apple's answers, they're, I mean, they've been fine, but they say what they always say, uh, which is like, okay, well, if you're, you know, if you're making a thing for, uh, the phone and you have existing code base and UI kit, you can keep using that. And if you've got an existing app kit app, you keep using that. If you want to try Swift UI, you can, but of course it's kind of new. And then Catalyst is for, you know, like we know all the answers. Like there are straightforward answers. If you ask any from Apple, there's an answer they can give you and you say, yeah, sure. That makes sense. Right. But people, what people want to know at this point is, okay, but what's the plan? And Apple's not big about telling you the plan for good reasons. Like it's a fairly good strategy not to tell people the plan, but I think, you know, here's the thing with plans you can have a plan but the plan might change and if you didn't tell anybody about the plan they don't have to know that you have to change the plan <laughs> like that's, that's <laughs> apple's that's apple's general strategy with this hello air power uh, yeah well yeah don't and don't announce the product but but even for stuff like this so um two angles one last show i talked about like oh it was cool when we you know had a mac pro that was intel and i got a machine that could run like unity stuff because mac os 10 was unix and i could run all the mac native stuff and also, I could run all of Windows and Windows games, right? It was a one piece of hardware that I could buy that did everything. It was a, you know, first-class, pure, boot right into Windows, play all the Windows games, 100% extremely expensive, fancy Windows PC. Also, it was an awesome Mac. Also, it had a bunch of Unix stuff, right? The, the machine that could do anything. Uh, and on the Keynote episode, uh, we talked about how, well, okay, you're not going to be able to do all that Intel Windows stuff anymore. And ARM Windows is currently not a thing. But what you have instead is a single platform that can run all the things as long as all those things are Apple. And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, not all of them, but there's a lot of Apple things. That announcement that your Mac will be able to run iPad and iPhone apps in addition to Mac apps and in addition to Catalyst apps. It seems like the Mac has become, in a slightly different way, the platform that runs everything. Which brings us to this Apple platform unification question again. So where where are they going with that? The API question is tied into that. If you had asked someone at Apple many years ago, I see you've got this new operating system and you have an API called Carbon and this Cocoa thing with this weird language with angle brackets. I'm starting a new Mac app. What should I use? That answer has changed. Like, they, you know, if you'd asked about Carbon earlier, like, oh, if you have an existing Mac app, of course, use Carbon. That's what it's there for. It's so you can bring your existing Mac apps to the, our new platform. You'll have to change some stuff, but, you know, you can reuse a lot of your code. Use Carbon. If you're starting a new app, try out this Cocoa thing. Don't be scared of the, of the square brackets. They won't hurt you. Like, it'll be cool, right? Eventually, and there was a diversion into Java. Let's just set that aside. <laughs> right? Eventually... <laughs> Uh, lots of people started to make new Objective-C apps. And they're like, wow, a single person can make a really full-featured app with Cocoa. Oh, but some controls only available in Carbons. But you can mix Carbon and Cocoa. Oh, well, there's a, here's a new WWC session about this cool new layout or control thing. Oh, but it's only in Cocoa. Oh, but this one's only in Carbon. Hey, Apple, why do, you, why are Carbon, why do Carbon and Cocoa not have the same feature set? Because if I've got an existing Carbon app, I want this new control, but it's only Cocoa. And some Cocoa app wants this new thing, but it's only in Carbon. And why do I always have to use Carbon? I use QuickTime and do video things. And like, what's the deal? What is your API strategy? And Apple would never tell you, like up until the very last moment, they would never say, just write a thing in Cocoa. Because we're getting rid of Carbon. In case you haven't figured that out, just write it in Cocoa. They would never say that because you wouldn't want to say that to like, you know, Adobe, whose Photoshop was, you know, brought over as a Carbon application, right? Right up to the point where they, they did an air power, speaking of what Casey said, they announced ca- a carbon for 64-bit. And at the last minute, they said, you know what? 
going to 64 bit is a great time to finally cut the cord on carbon. And they said, uh, even though we announced carbon for 64 bit and actually I think they ship some version of it in some dev build or something, we're not actually going to do that. So if you want your app to come over to 64 bit, which you probably do eventually, because we're going to eventually stop selling 32 bit max, you know, you can see the writing on the wall. Coco is the future. But at no point prior to that would they have told you, oh, you should do everything in Cocoa. Carbon is dead. But Carbon was a dead API walking for a long time. And you could you could have arguments about it, and you could say, well, the Finder is in Carbon, and the Apple supports Carbon, and it's a peer, and they've been getting better about putting both features and both things all the time. But a good rule of thumb is if you picture all of the API used to write for a platform on like a timeline from left to right, the past is on the left, the future is on the right, and each API has a starting point and an ending point. The APIs whose starting point is farther to the left, they're usually going to stop sooner. Now, it's difficult for things like Carbon, because like, how far back do I do that? Well, Carbon is brand new with Mac OS X. It starts in year one in 20, uh, 2001. Well, not really, because Carbon has its roots in Mac Toolbox stuff, which goes back to like 1984. Yeah, and Cocoa... That started in uh, Mac OS X, right? Well, not really. It's from Next, and that's actually from the late 80s. But if you line those things up and you push them back to the farthest point, the Mac stuff is older than the Next stuff. So even setting aside the acquisition and the modernness or whatever, if you had to bet just based on this heuristic of basically the older API is going to die first, you would say Carbon's going to die first because Carbon was the past. Carbon started before the Next Step stuff, and it ended before the Next Step stuff. AppKit, you know, still trucks along. It is the native Mac API for doing Mac-only stuff, but AppKit doesn't run on the phone or on your TV or on your watch or anything like that. UIKit started with the iPhone, so it's 2007 or so, right? So you can extend that line out. If you had to bet uh, UIKit versus AppKit, you'd say, well, UIKit is way younger, so you think AppKit's going to die first. But if AppKit dies, what the hell are people going to write Mac apps in, right? Uh, then there's Catalyst. Very new. It's a way for you to get UIKit stuff onto your Mac. So you might think, well, you, the Catalyst is really new. That's probably going to stick around, but it's really just an extension of the UIKit line, isn't it? And then there's SwiftUI, which is super new. It's only been around for two years. But SwiftUI's intention from the beginning is you can run SwiftUI on all of Apple's platforms. You can run it on the watch. You can run it on the Mac. You're like, really? The same API for that? And it's like, well, it doesn't quite work that great yet, but we're working on it, right? Another way to look at these, and we'll put this uh, this image in the show notes because it's uh, unlike the one I just described. It's not just something in my head. Uh, who is it? Dario Rubik made this image on Twitter, which instead of showing the APIs along a timeline, shows them as bars that extend underneath Apple's platforms. And so you can see AppKit works on mac os for intel and arm and uikit works on ipad ipad os and mac os and uikit and catalyst works on just the two mac of uh, the two mac platforms and uikit works on tv os and then swift ui at the bottom of this diagram is a bar that goes across every one of the platforms because in theory it works on all of them so apple's not going to tell you that AppKit is dead apple's not going to tell you that uikit is dead Apple's not going to tell you that Catalyst is dead, and Apple's certainly not going to tell you that SwiftUI is dead. But one of these things is going to die. They're going to die in an order. They're not all going to go at once, and they're not all going to go on perpetually. So if you're looking at Apple's platforms and saying, what does the future look like out past where Apple's ever going to give me a straight answer? Out past where Apple even knows. 
Because here's the thing. I bet if you had asked certain people on year one of Mac OS X, they would have said, oh, Cocoa's the future, no question. But they haven't they hadn't proved that at that point. They can say that all they want, but like who's gonna who's gonna learn Objective C? Who's gonna use this weird API? All Mac apps are carbon, right? You just have these weird ported next apps that are Cocoa. No one's ever gonna do that, but people would say, Well, I believe. I believe that Cocoa is gonna be the future. I believe a new crop of developers will learn Objective C and they'll learn it to write on the thing that doesn't exist yet, which is the iPhone, and it'll just, you know, that'll be the future. But at that point, that wasn't clear, right? I bet today, if you ask some people inside Apple, they would say, here's my vision, Swift UI, everywhere. It's the way you write for all of Apple's platforms. It's a single language. It's a single API. You can tailor it to the, the strengths of each system. That is going to be the future. But like Coco back in 2001, you could say, okay, that's a great idea. But realistically speaking, that's not the, that's not the reality today. You have not convinced me. You have not proven that Swift UI can even do that. Like, that's not a thing, right? It's a plan. That's an idea, but it's not a thing. And at some point, not today, maybe not next year, but at some point, like with Carbon and Coco, you hit an inflection point where it's like, seems like Coco really can do all the things they said, and it seems like Carbon is fading. And then for the next three years, Apple will tell you, if you ever ask them, Carbon and Coco, their peers, they're both great. Use the one that makes the most sense to you. Right up into the point where they say, Carbon, totally dead. Sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, maybe not the best transition they ever had, but that's the reality. So I've been looking at these diagrams and thinking about at the low level and at the high level, what's the future of Apple's platforms look like? And I think going from the top and maybe eventually getting into Casey's love of the way Big Sur looks, the last episode we talked a lot about how we don't like certain aspects of the way things look, in particular uh, the similarities between iOS and macOS. I'm not, I listened back to the show, and I'm not sure this was entirely clear from what I said, although I, I did do think I mentioned it at one point. But you, you could be forgiven for hearing that and saying, oh, they don't like it because it looks too much like iOS. And they said there's no reason for it to look like iOS, but actually there is a reason. Mostly we don't like it because they look bad. <laughs> like that was Marco's complaint about like, the alert. Right? Like, it's, it's not that we dislike it because it looks like iOS, because consistency is good and has a purpose, I think. But we want it to be readable like it's a downgrade in terms of usability so if you want consistency which i think you do want make it consistent but also good across platforms and the consistency argument is compelling i think because if you envision the mac for example as the sort of the mother platform that can run everything because on the mac you can run iphone apps you can run ipad apps maybe eventually you'll be able to run watch os outside uh, apps outside the simulator maybe eventually you'll be able to run tv os apps right because apple's platforms will all be on apple silicon They'll all be on APIs that Apple controls with a language that it invented, right? This is the platform unification, this world where you can run all the things, and the Mac is a thing that can build for all of them and run all of them. And if you can run all of them and you can build all of them, you'd want the experience to be unified. You don't want the iPhone apps to look weird running on the Mac. You don't want the iPad apps to look weird running on the Mac. You want it all to look like a piece. So the icons change in Big Sur to look closer to what the icons look like on ios and ipad os right everything moves around in the ui to be better for touch targets right said in the last show touch macs are coming how are you going to use ipad and iphone apps on the mac without multi-touch well probably the arm Macs will be touch based right you start to get a picture of a single sort of Apple platform where devices can run all of the apps that make sense for that device. And the biggest and baddest platform can run all of them and has to have all the features, including a touchscreen. On the phone, you can't run iPad apps because it's too small, right? 
What can you run on the phone? Just the iPhone apps. On the iPad, you can run the phone apps and the iPad apps. On the watch, you can just do watch apps. I don't think watch apps make sense on the phone, but technically it would definitely be possible, right? You start to get this picture of a unified Apple world where apps look similar enough to each other to be comfortable hanging around with each other. And every Apple device gives you all the input methods and interaction models that make sense for that device. So the Macs have to have touch because sometimes it makes sense to use touch. So you need to make it plausible for touch to be useful in the same way that the iPad makes it plausible for keyboards to be useful, plausible for trackpads to be useful. That took effort on the iPad to make uh, the trackpad useful. By the way, there's a great session about uh, cursor on the iPad to show how they did that. It doesn't mean suddenly you never touch the screen on the iPad in the same way that it's not going to mean that you never touch the mouse or keyboard on the Mac. It just needs to be a plausible input method. And if you buy into that model, which I totally do, that plan, that vision, which Apple, by the way, has not articulated, but it's sitting there like staring you in the face if you just look at what they're releasing. They're not going to articulate that grand vision quite yet, but it's there. Then you go back to the API question. How do we get from where we are now to that grand vision? And the answer is obviously Swift UI, but it's not there yet. So Apple wisely is not going to tell everybody uh you that's a great app kit app you've got there and ui kit is awesome and catalyst great that's cool port your stuff but like the future eventually is swift ui everywhere and they can't say that because it's not true now they have to prove it right they have three or four or five years to prove that swift ui can even freaking do that job and then they have to slowly convince everybody like like adobe and microsoft to get on board that train right if you had told someone back in 2001 apple will eventually convince adobe and microsoft and all these other big companies to essentially quote-unquote port their apps to coco right what about old school mac developers like bb edit's been around for a million years they're not going to rewrite bb edit and coco there it's going to be carbon forever or the app's going to die guess what bb edit runs in 64-bit <laughs> and you know it was a, a mac toolbox application then it was a carbon application and now it is essentially a coco application nature finds a way it is possible, but you have to do it slowly. It's like trying to, you know, introduce the pet to a new home. Like, you can't just all at once say, AppKit is dead and UIKit is going away. Because people will flip out. And it's not true. It's not It's not actually true that that's going to happen. But that's, that's going to happen, right? Eventually, it all goes to plan. If it doesn't go to plan, they to come up with other plans. But even if that doesn't go to plan, in the battle between AppKit and UIKit, which one of those things is carbon in this scenario? UIKit spans a bunch of platforms. AppKit does not. AppKit only gets to be a longer bar in this diagram because they decided that ARM Mac and Intel Mac are two platforms. You just do Mac as one. AppKit looks like a tiny, tiny little thing. So as much as I love AppKit and as much as people love UIKit and as much as Catalyst is going to help bring that stuff over, I feel like Apple's grand vision, Apple's unarticulated but existing, I contend, grand vision for their platform relies on the eventual success of swift ui and if swift ui has to coexist with an imperative api i don't know in, if AppKit is gonna i don't know like i i suppose if it takes a long time for swift ui to come to primacy AppKit and ui can just continue to exist as the way you bail out of swift ui when you can't get something to work but i'm having a hard time not looking at AppKit, especially as today's carbon and i'm having a hard time looking at ui kit as having a super bright future 
in the face of Swift UI, which is just absolutely gunning for every single thing that UI kit does and from top to bottom. And this is year two already. You can make a Swift UI app from top to bottom and in theory not touch UI kit, which is not true, by the way. Like Swift UI uses app kit controls on the Mac. It uses UI kit controls on the like that's the reality of today. That's what I'm saying. Like you say, oh, Swift UI is never gonna replace those. It uses them. Just like Coco used to use carbon controls, just like Coco used to have to use carbon to play video, right? That's that's where we are today. But this is where I think we're going. Do I do I sound insane, or is this making sense to you too? You absolutely do not sound insane. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it, you know it, what's what's interesting is that Apple has said, like like I believe Craig, Craig Federighi said exactly um, in the uh, Gruber interview this year um, that like you know you can. You can keep writing your app in all the you know UI Kit, App Kit. They're they're not going anywhere. You keep running it in everything, but I think you're right that you know that's not going to be the case forever, and that these technologies are not all going to die at the same time. <laughs> that they will definitely have like you know you. I think App Kit dies first out of these three. Uh, UI Kit mm-hmm. d- probably less significantly longer, but but is you know when the time comes, it's going to be the next one to go. At this point, if you want to write an app that runs on all of Apple's major platforms, AppKit doesn't do that at all. You know, as you, you mentioned that that awesome uh, tweet graphic where it shows you know what all the what languages you know span them all. You basically have two choices. Uh, you can you can either um, unless you want to write like you know three different code bases but if you're going to have like just pretty much one main code base and have most of the ui represented in that code base you only have two, two choices really ui kit or app or um swift ui and so app kit it's you know it's just it's gonna it's got to get the boot like well if you're gonna only focus on one code base it's not gonna be app kit uh, at least it shouldn't be app kit and i say this like i like parts of app kit I don't like it enough to write my apps in it very much, but but I do, you know, I, I like what it does. I like what other apps are able to do with it. Um, there are a lot of things about the Catalyst app that I don't like, uh, still, even in Big Sur. But as a programmer of an app that has a bunch of UI code and where people on all platforms are demanding ports of it, it is really hard to argue with I should be using probably UI kit everywhere, which I'm already using on, you know, the whole app so far on iOS, but like I should be taking UI kit to the Mac via catalyst. And also I should definitely be writing most new stuff that can be written reasonably in Swift UI in Swift UI. And that is clearly the future. I mean, eventually maybe not today. Cause like the, it's like Coco in the beginning, you can think that all you want, but if you tried to make like a, an app that did all the things that a good app needed to do in the early days with Cocoa, you couldn't. It was weird. It didn't behave right. The features weren't there, right? And that's where SwiftUI is now. But, but like, here's the thing. SwiftUI, pretend SwiftUI didn't exist. This would be a lot simpler. The fact that they made SwiftUI at all means they don't think it's UI kit forever. Because why would you make a second API to do essentially the same job as UI kit? Because UI kit is older. It's not as old as AppKit, but it's older, and, and you look at the difference between AppKit and UIKit. They learn so much. The AppKit people who you know learn all the lessons of AppKit, and they use those lessons in UIKit. Swift UI is very different from both of those. In theory, incorporating lessons learned, but also kind of a new take on how you do UI. And if you listen to Apple's pitches for Swift UI, and you listen closely, obviously from the true believers in Swift UI, from the people who made it, they tell you it's not just a different weird way to do things, like maybe Casey with his 
combine stuff. Like it's not, it's, it's uh, I know. They're, actually, it's related, right? What they pitch to you is like, look, if you have to manually do stuff with an imperative UI, there's so much that can go wrong. You have to worry about lots of things and deal with them manually. Swift UI lets you not have to worry about a lot of that because of the programming model, not because it's a different API with like different function names and different arguments. That's not what it is. It's because there are certain things that categorically are not an issue. Like the same reason that Casey loves reactive programming. Certain things categorically you don't have to deal with anymore because they don't happen. Like the state isn't there. It's represented in the call graph, right? You know, all, all the things that that allow these declarative UIs to be simpler and allow you to write good code with fewer bucks. Like Apple itself believes that, whether you believe it or not, and whether Swift UI currently embodies that, which arguably it doesn't quite yet, but it's two years old, right? Um, th- they made this new API, and that's essentially a vote of no confidence in UIKit and AppKit, saying, we think there's a better way. We're going to make a better way because UIKit traces its lineage to AppKit, which traces its lineage to Next Step, which traces its lineage to the 80s. And <laughs> we've got a new language, and we've now we've got a new API that suits it. And that's their, that's their goal. Could end up like air power, right? <laughs> but right now, it, it seems like that's where they're going. So, and, and unlike the diagram, like, you know, Carbon with this bar diagram in my head that I should have made in real life but didn't, Carbon has a hard cutoff. It was like, well, 64-bit, see a Carbon. Like, just not going to happen. But in reality, old APIs don't die. They just fade away. Like, there's no real reason to do a hard cutoff. So UI kits fade out. Like, the gradient on the right side of that bar is going to be pretty long. Same thing with AppKit. Because, like, they work. They're fine. AppKit's going to be around for as long as it takes uh, Adobe and Microsoft to port their apps to Swift UI, which could take a decade and a half. Right? <laughs> Whatever. Let's be realistic <laughs> yeah. here. Right? But... They don't, those lines don't go on forever. And the Swift UI line has just started. And so if it is successful in any possible way, it's going to, and same thing with, I didn't mention this, but Objective-C and Swift. When Swift was announced, Apple was all like, yeah, we got this cool language. It's really nice. Yeah, we, we should check it out. 1.0, <laughs> we're going to change it, blah, blah, blah. And if you had said in that WWDC, see ya, Objective-C, not going to be any Objective-C, they'd be like, eh, well, this is a new language. We'll see how it goes. And they'd be right. Like, you have to see how it will go. Many years now, if someone said, I think Objective-C will be the the uh, preferred way to write uh, apps on Apple's platforms, it's like, it's already not. <laughs> that, that time has already passed. Well, I think Objective-C will be around forever. Mm, no, don't think so. It'll be around for a really long time, but its line is fading out. And no one argues that anymore. Like, everything is Swift, as Marco said earlier in the show. Everything is Swift. All, you know, from day one, every all the code examples had Swift, at least Swift and Objective-C. And today, everything is Swift, right? Swift, I think, has proven itself to Apple, at least, that this is the language of Apple's platform future. Even though, yes, they will continue to support and improve, by the way. There's a bunch of cool Objective-C improvements this year for, like, performance improvements and stuff. They'll continue to support it, but its line is fading. Swift UI's line is fading in at this point instead of fading out. UIKit is totally solid. AppKit, I would argue, is already kind of fading out. And Catalyst is just a way to scribble over AppKit's line even more by saying, ha UI kid, I'm in your base. What is that one? I can't even remember it. Killing your dudes? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I hate to say, but it does seem to me like it is extremely obvious that AppKit's time is limited. And it, I think it was very obvious before I heard your monologue, and I think it's extremely obvious to me now that AppKit's time is limited. And I don't 
see a world where UI kit is going away as quickly as you seem to be implying, but I agree that if there is only one way forward, it is almost certainly Swift UI, which as someone who really likes UI kit, that slightly pains me, but but logically it's it's the answer that makes the most sense. I mean, yeah, like like all the people who love the objective C and carbon, like you'll eventually get over it. Like the, the thing yeah, yeah, the yeah. change happens slow enough that it doesn't seem so bad. Like it happens, the change happens slow enough that even Microsoft and Adobe can handle it. So certainly individual developers will not be bowled over. Again, Carbon is the exception where there was just this hard cutoff that was really tough on even indies. But everything else that I've talked about is, you know, it's a slow, you know, apocryphal boiling the frog type of thing where Marco has been stewing in Swift for so long. And he's mostly been able to just chill and ignore it and continue to be productive. Now he's feeling the water get a little bit warm, but... No one's, you know, <laughs> forcing him to use Swift. He can still get his job done with Objective-C. It's going to be supported for years, if not decades, right? But that's how these transitions take place. I, the more interesting story from consumer's perspective, if you're not a developer listening to all this API mumbo-jumbo, is what I said before about what does the experience look like of using Apple devices? And that's the experience that I feel like Apple, I was surprised they didn't more forcefully pitch it. They, again, were timid about it. The idea that five years in the future, there is one app store with apps that can run various platforms. Every app doesn't run on every platform, but you just go to the app store and get an app. And some of the apps will run on every platform. Some will just run on the watch. Some will run on the iPad, on the Mac. Some will run on the phone or whatever. And it's all just in one big stew. And the Mac, the whole point that the Mac exists is it's the place where you can run all the things. Again, maybe it doesn't make that much sense to run anything from watchOS on your Mac, but technically you could. TVOS, I think, makes more sense, actually, to run that on a Mac with a big screen or something, right? But you can do all the things on the Mac. You can develop on the Mac. This is another reason, by the way, that you don't necessarily have to ever have Xcode on the Mac. Instead, you have iPad apps on the Mac in, you know, instead of the other way around. Or, you know, it's like when they eventually make the drafting table touch iPad that I've been begging for since hypercritical days, <laughs> does that have to be an iPad or can that be a Mac? Once Macs get touch and can run iPad apps, there's no reason that needs to be an iPad. So the Mac will continue to be the shield as I think Gruber said in one of his articles, to allow the iPad and the iPhone to remain sort of lighter in terms of conceptual load and complexity by doing all the things. A touch-based drafting table iMac that runs macOS on ARM and can run all iPad apps with multi-touch, problem solved, right? So easy to do. I don't know how many years we have to wait for that, but that's the future I see. And by the way, yes, in that future, everything looks similar enough to each other that having it all together on the same screen is not jarring and that the Mac controls all aren't all teeny tiny and the iPad and iPhone controls are all big. They're getting close enough to each other that there's a family resemblance and that all input methods that are plausible can be used. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Mac Weldon, and Linode. And thanks to our members. If you want to become a member, go to atp.fm slash join. Otherwise, thank you very much. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at CH.
Yes, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O, A-R-M, E-N-T, Marco Armin, S-I-R-A-C, U-S-A, Syracuse, it's accidental. Casey, I noticed that on Twitter you were talking about calorie counting as a thing you were starting. I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, how, 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 that's fine. Um, so I've been on a meandering fitness journey for the last, I don't know, year or two. Um, I don't remember exactly when it started, but uh, something like a year or two ago, um, Aaron started doing um, some exercise videos at home, and the the particular ones she was doing were through um, Beachbody, which I think we may have talked about this on the show before. But if you if you're familiar with Beachbody and going, oh god, oh god, oh god, so Beachbody is without doubt one hundred percent an MLM like pyramid scheme, a million percent, and you can easily get sucked into the become a coach thing of Beachbody, where you're trying to recruit people and blah blah blah, uh. total MLM garbage, right? Not denying that at all. However, the other side of Beachbody is they put out a whole crud load. They have they basically have a, a Netflix of exercise videos, and I've done one of their programs a couple, two or three, maybe even four times through now, and I, I actually really like it. And Erin's done several of their programs, and she really likes them. So, putting aside the MLM portion of it, if you just focus on the Netflixy exercise portion of it, it's actually pretty good. Um, and so I've done a, a kind of weightlifting oriented program a few times through, and I also, you know, like to run on occasion, um, my Achilles heel, I, I, I had it looked at about a year ago and it, and supposedly my right Achilles has a bur- a bone spur on it. I'm sorry. You mean literally that. I was, yeah, I was, I was just <laughs> beginning of the sentence like my Achilles heel is, no, no, right, no, no, yeah, literal, literal <laughs> I, I spend heel. too much time on projects <laughs> dealing with my garage door. It's my, <laughs> yeah, yeah. your actual Achilles heel. <laughs> Yeah, my my my, my, my biggest my biggest fault is that I can find no faults. Um, no, no, my my literal tendon uh, or someone something in that region it it gets a little finicky. So if I run too much, it, it it's not a good idea. And plus, running is really kind of terrible for you anyway. Uh, but I love it. I do enjoy running. Uh, in no small part thanks to Overcast for the Apple Watch. <clears throat> <clears throat> mm-hmm. Moving right along. Um, but anyway, uh, so we were at the beach last week and, uh, this is deeply embarrassing, but I'll just come out and say it. Uh, there was a couple with two small children, bigger than our small children, but still with two small children. And the two of them were like ridiculously toned and stick thin. And I just looked over and I was like, how do you do that? Like, I don't view myself as a particularly large fellow, but these two were like ridiculously like picturesque adult man and woman and yet they had children which is when usually your body falls apart especially for women but even for men and so i look over at them and i'm like man i gotta there's gotta be somewhere between where i am and there that i can try to reach for and so uh when i got home about the same time uh, aaron and i both independently thought you know what we should start paying attention again um <laughs> Someone in the chat just said, Timo Cow in the chat said, Casey Liss is not a large fellow, but is he a big sir? That's very good. <laughs> That's very, very good. Sorry, I got I got totally derailed there. Anyways, so we thought to ourselves independently and then said to each other, you know, we should probably start paying more attention to what we what we eat again. And and I used on and off over the years, I've used an app called Lose It um to kind of 
calorie count and, and track. And, and I mean, again, I, I don't think I'm in desperate need of, I don't even really think I need to lose weight as much as I need to move it around. <laughs> like I wish I could just push it from my a little bit larger than I want midsection area to like my stick thin legs and arms, you know, like if I could just squeeze it to other parts of my body, that'd be great. I think I could do that with hair. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, right. Same thing, right? <laughs> Take it all off my back and just move it straight up. I don't think you. I don't think you want the back hair on your head. At this point, I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be the best episode ever. Uh, so anyway, so I went casting out because I started using Lose It again for literally a day, and Lose It is very full featured. Like you can scan barcodes, and it has a very robust database. Of, of foods and calorie counts and, and nutrition information. I haven't paid for it, to be honest, um, but I, I didn't really feel like I needed any of the perks that came from paying for it. And I'm just looking at this app, and it's just visually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an assault on the eyes. It's, 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 it's offensive how ugly it is. I just, I hate how it looks. And using it is not all that much better. And so I went casting about for an alternative to it and what i've been using for the last 48 hours and and i and i like a lot um i i don't know if it's quite perfect but i like it a lot is uh, and i love the name it's called food noms f-o-o-d-n-o-m-s and it's actually by the husband of a friend of mine um which is super cool and i didn't even know that 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 his husband did this app which is also super cool uh i I wish i'd known it but anyways uh it's very well designed extremely well designed a couple of uh of interactions i don't totally love, but I've already been exchanging tweets uh, with the developer and he seems super responsive to, uh, you know, making changes and improving the app in any way possible. Uh, But that's many, many, many words to say. I think it's probably unwise for me to continue to only lightly pay attention to what I eat. And calorie counting is arguably more about weight loss than anything else. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily need to lose weight as much as I feel like I want to be more conscious of what I eat and get a little bit more toned and just try to be healthier. Um, now, coincidentally, in this, in the show notes for our, in our after show section, you had made a one-off comment, Marco, at some point about running, and I'd like to explore that, but I'm not trying to necessarily take the spotlight off me if you have any follow-up questions. I'll, I'll gladly keep it on you for a little while longer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, basically, I, I think you, you seem like you're on the right track here. Um, I, I used to use Lose It, I mean, geez, probably 10 years ago now. It's not a new yeah, app. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, like, as I was like, it was basically the first time I'd ever tried to diet. And, and so I, I started there and I read the whole, like, you know, the hacker diet thing where, oh, just, just calories in and calories out. And I mean, that's not entirely accurate, but it, it at least gets you in the ballpark. Um, so I actually found calorie counting extremely helpful. It, it, it basically taught me, like, what is expensive and what is cheap to eat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. It, it's hard for me to keep that up as a weight loss tool uh, because it, I just I hit a point where I just am miserable all the time. If that's the only thing I'm doing, I have found much for weight loss. I found it much more effective to reduce carbs than than to strictly reduce calories because reducing carbs I, I have found makes it easier for me to keep the calories down because the things I'm still eating keep me full for longer. So that's that's a whole thing um, that you will probably discover if you haven't already. Um, but I, I think you are you are wise to separate out the concerns between fitness and weight loss. Those are two very different things, and I think one of the great failings of American culture is that we seem to have convinced ourselves that they are the same thing. 
that if you want to lose weight, the thing you should do is go to the gym sometimes. And that is terrible advice. <laughs> Those are totally separate things. And you should have your weight in a healthy range if possible. And you should keep your body in, in a state of you know relative fitness if at all possible. But those are two totally separate things that you can, you know, you can do one or the other. Ideally, you do some of both. But to, in order to lose weight, running a couple times a week or going to the gym a couple times a week or hell, even if you go to the gym for like an hour a day, if you're still eating a whole bunch of, of garbage, <laughs> like you're not going to lose any weight. <laughs> like it's, it's very helpful to, to, to treat those things. Oh, sorry for all the, all the thunder sounds. <laughs> I mean, this oh, is goodness, really getting, there it is. <laughs> it's really getting quite loud over here, but I'm going to keep going. I swear it isn't this spooky of a topic. <laughs> you should lose weight. Boom. Yeah, right. <laughs> Stop eating everything that tastes good. <laughs> Crash. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I feel like the more that, that you can do, and you are listeners as well, and, and I'm talking to myself as much as anybody, the more you can do to separate out fitness from weight loss, the more effective you'll be at both because uh, they are two very different things. Fitness, there's lots of options for. Weight loss, there, you know, you can do it a bunch of different ways. There's a whole bunch of stuff that works a little bit. There's a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't work at all. There's a few things that work a lot. Yeah, Generally, calorie restriction is the way to do it. Uh, for the most part. Again, talk to your doctor, etc. However, um, there are you know healthier and less healthy ways to do calorie restriction. And again, like I, I think carb reduction is one of the easiest because like you start seeing like how how much, for instance, like if you if you drink calories, and I'm not just talking about alcohol, just you know stuff like drinking soda or having sugar or milk in your coffee, like that stuff adds up. If you can cut out drinking as many calories as possible, that's an easy win. Because drinking calories don't do anything for you. Like they don't, they're not helping you at all. They're not keeping you full. Um, and then, you know, in the way that calorie counting taught me to start looking at nutrition labels a little more carefully and to start learning, like, you know what? Turns out, like, our, our obsession with things like olive oil and everything, you don't need oil in most things, and it's horribly unhealthy for you. Olive oil is good for you. <laughs> hold on, hold on a second. Italian coming in here. Olive oil is the good fat. I'm Italian too. <laughs> Guess what? Oils are terrible for you. Like You can not, have not a tiny amount of... No, it really... That is also terrible for you. Like no, Just don't have just, much of it and definitely don't heat it. Just drink a, a cup of olive oil a day and you'll be great. Yeah, right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh God. But yeah, like it, there, there are things that people think are healthy that aren't. There are things that uh, you assume that you have to have in your diet that you might not need to or that you might need a lot less of. Carb reduction can get you very far down the road of calorie reduction. Now, there are ways to do it stupidly, and there are ways to do it smartly. Like My, my way of doing it for the last couple of years has been I'm not going to count the carbs in vegetables. Like, so, I mean, not, you know, and, I'm, and I'm not considering a potato a vegetable because that's just cheating. But like, you know, I'm not going to count like whatever's in leafy greens. I eat as many leafy greens as I want to, and it's it and it's it's so ungraceful. I will literally buy like the boxes of the pre-washed lettuce, one of those like medium-sized boxes. It's about the size of like two books stacked up. I'll just eat one of those like with a meal by hand, just grabbing the lettuce, like eating it like chips, just <laughs> as like part of the meal <laughs> for lunch. Like I'll have a box of lettuce and you know some chicken salad or something. You know, don't count calories in greens. Oh, you know. 
God, that's a big thunder. Oh, wow. You are, is, you're, you're about to lose power up you're there. You're assuming Casey eats any greens. That's true. Uh, excuse <laughs> me, sir. Do you know what I have for lunch every day? I have a salad. Uh, well, last time we asked you, you said you had a grilled cheese sandwich every day. Yeah, and then my cholesterol <laughs> spiked. Uh, right. I thunk it, and so now I eat a salad grilled every day. Grilled cheese is a vegetable, right? Right. Yeah, yeah that's, exactly, that's how it works. You know, in, in this in this thing that Marco set up between uh, fitness and weight loss, my advice to you, Casey, is forget about the weight loss. Just do the fitness because nobody cares what you look like. Like, you're like not the, you know what I mean? But like, you're not a model for your profession. You're gonna look like what you're gonna look like within reason, obviously. If you're you know control your diet in some reasonable way, but like, don't think that you're gonna have the chiseled physique because you're not like the what it takes to get a chisel physique at your age is way more time and everything you're going to want to put into it that's not going to happen but fitness keeps you alive like all the things about like oh if you're slightly overweight you're going to die earlier you that's not like that's not necessarily the case if you are fit if your internal organs all work well if you can get oxygen to your blood easily if your heart is strong that will keep you alive until Alzheimer's gets you. But anyway, like like <laughs> fitness is way more important than quote unquote weight loss. Because if you're trying to lose weight for some vanity reason, that's the wrong way. You want fitness to live to see your grandkids, right? Fitness is what you want to go for. And it, by the way, if you go for fitness, you will, as a side effect experience, some amount of what you want, which may not manifest as weight loss, but will manifest as a body shape that is nicer because it's impossible to doggedly pursue fitness and not essentially redistribute your weight at the very least, if not lose weight. So I would say, forget about weight loss, go for fitness and everything else will follow. Uh, much of what John is saying is true, but I think having like course corrections in both areas are usually better. I mean, you can't, you can't pig out, but like, look at Casey, he's not pigging out. Right. Casey yeah. is not, uh, it does not have a massive weight problem that we need to address because he's having 12 dozen eggs every day for breakfast. Like, this is not happening. His diet is reasonable ish. He's probably eating garbage, but reasonable ish in terms of <laughs> you know. calorie count. Like, what are you, you're like six foot something, Casey. How much do you I'm weigh? Six, if you, if, I'm six if, foot. And uh, I, how much? I was about 160 this morning. See, roughly. So, so, like, what are you even worried about? Fitness is all you care about. And then finding the right way to get fitness. Like, you're six foot 160. Our listeners are screaming at you right now. All oh, of our know, listeners who are not that are screaming at you and saying, you are uh, not that much heavier than me for being so much taller than me. <laughs> well, and I mean, the, the thing of it is, is that I I have been, I have not been as consistent with exercise as I'd like, but I've been, I'm in probably the best shape I've ever been in, in my life in terms of like my physical abilities. Like, you know, I just the other day, it was a week or two back, I ran a mile hard. You know, I typically would run about a 5k if I'm going to go for a run. And uh, just a couple of weeks back, I ran a mile hard and I was within like 20 seconds of the fastest mile I ever ran in high school. Now, to be clear, I always have been a deeply unathletic human being. This is why I'm a computer nerd. But or maybe, I don't know, maybe the computer nerd came first. Who knew? But anyway, um, I, I ran a reasonably quick mile for my body. And I, I think, you know, certainly that's something that I'm proud of. I have something that vaguely resembles a bicep and something that vaguely resembles a tricep, which is new for me. I've never had those before. So that's kind of neat. Um, now, if anyone else looked at it, they'd be like, huh, what? But I can tell. And that's kind of all that really matters. Um, and I've been relatively consistent with the fitness over the last year or two, but my choices with regard to diet have ranged from don't care to 
well, I should probably be a little more, uh, a little more considered than I am. And then occasionally I'll go through fits and spurts of, you know, I'm actually doing a really good job. I mean, generally speaking, my daily diet is I have a fruit smoothie for breakfast and it's just, you know, like uh, half a banana, handful of strawberries, handful of blueberries and some protein powder and some soy milk. And that's it. That's the whole thing. That's my whole breakfast. Massive amount of sugar. Yeah. Like a huge amount of sugar. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, is a fair bit of, it is a fair bit of sugar. No doubt. No doubt. But it, it's, it's a lot better than having... It's a lot better than having a couple egos, which I did 20, 15, 20 years ago. You know what I mean? It's probably less sugar in the egos, but go on. That, it's, oh it's, God, it, gentlemen. it's slightly better, maybe. Uh, <laughs> At least you get some fiber with the fruit. My point <laughs> is that there are many, many worse choices that I could be making. Can we at least agree that? Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I think, I mean, your diet is probably, if you just like, if you just did the thing where you take like the amount of whatever you're currently eating, take less than the normal amount that you would make, that small adjustment would probably have you right. shedding small amounts of pounds, like literally without changing anything. And then if you actually go far enough and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have a sugar-filled smooth fruit smoothie every single day for breakfast, but instead have like, I don't know, something else, like just fruit by itself and with like an egg or something, one of those days. Like Anyway, like minor adjustments would have a big effect on you. But like, honestly... You're six foot and one sixty. Like, what is your what is your target weight? Like, you don't need to lose weight. You just need to redistribute a little bit. I don't think I do need to lose very much. I just I look down at my gut and it's not it's not the friggin' six pack that this guy who yeah. must have been about the same age as me because right. his kids were well, quite you, a bit older. Again, you're not going to get a six pack with that massive restriction uh, on agreed. fat intake and huge agreed. amounts of working out. But you can move some of that gut around by just doing a, little, a couple more weightlifting exercises. And uh, stuff. Agreed. We agree. And and I, what I haven't had a chance to say is because I keep interrupting myself, much less the two of you, <laughs> is that I no, I mean, that I, I, I keep going on these tangents. Um, I think one of the benefits that I have from entering the food I consume. And this is not unique to Casey. And this is a very common thing. But a benefit, one of the biggest benefits I get is just being more considered about it because I will idly go grab something that is truly terrible for me to eat if left to my own devices. Um, you know, I'll, I'll throw down uh, club crackers like they're like like the, it's like they're going out of style. Oh, those are so good and so <laughs> bad so for you. Good. They're so exactly. delicious. Exactly. But they're terrible. You just, you <laughs> yourself hacks. Don't have them in the house. No food after eight p.m. There's all sorts of very simple rules that you can use to trim the worst of your bad habits. Yeah. Like, why are you buying club crackers? Like, I to me, <laughs> like they taste so good. They're because they're they taste like freaking amazing. Yeah, they're like drugs for me. But that's why I, that's why I haven't bought them in like fifteen years because I, I know that yeah. I, I luckily do not like a lot of these garbage foods, so I'm saved from being tempted <laughs> by them. <laughs> but but the thing of it is is by just the the fact of me entering like when I if I were to go and grab a club cracker or two or something <laughs> and then you have to shamefully enter that <laughs> and, and then, then I have to shamefully <laughs> enter it then I'm going to choose differently and like almost every night after we put the kids to bed there's a couple hours that Aaron and I'll stay up and nine times out of ten I'll grab something to munch on and what I'm teaching myself over just the last couple of days when I've been re when I, when I've been entering stuff again is that I don't, I'm not hungry. I just want to eat. Like I don't need to eat anything. I'm not actively hungry. Most times I just want to, I just like the act of eating. And again, I don't think this is unique to me, but just by virtue of having something, some amount of accountability, I think it's, it's made 
it's made me make better choices, not only in terms of what I grab to eat. You know, the other day I grabbed an apple instead of 15 club crackers or whatever. I mean, I'm overemphasizing how many crackers I eat, but you get my point. No, you're not. No, because the, 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 the like plastic sleeves of club crackers have the similar problem as the um, Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies, which is that <laughs> there is no way to open the, the package that, comes, that, they, that they come in without exposing like five or six cracker edges to the air. And then it's like, well, then you have to eat them. Otherwise, they'll go stale. Yeah, you have to. You have no choice. In the process of getting those out of the bag, the crack spreads down the bag and exposes five more crackers. <laughs> yep. And then yep. it's like, well, you, ha- you, have to, you have to be able to like roll up the bag nicely so you can't stop mm-hmm. here. You have to just take these five first. Then you can dummy them. They will not be in your house long enough to go stale. That's not actually a concern. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can just... Just, just wait, just wait, Casey. Here's you want a glimpse of your future, by the way. Just wait until your kids enter their teen years and start eating a bazillion calories, because <laughs> they will be modeling a behavior that you cannot and should not follow. Because you, know, right, you right, remember right. what it was like when you were a teenage boy. And you, oh yeah, you know the amount of calories you eat. You see them do that, and a they eat all your food, and b if you're anywhere near them, you, you like mirror their behavior. Oh, we'll sit down at the table, have lunch together. Here's your lunch, and here's my lunch, and and you're still in the mode where it's like daddy's lunch is bigger than the kids' lunch. That's going to reverse. It better reverse because you should not be eating the same lunch as your teenage son. So just keep that in mind for your future. Whatever you're doing now that like maintains your current weight, you're going to have to be more strict as time goes on. As we get older, if we don't mm-hmm. change our habits, like it, it gets harder to get in shape. It gets harder to stay in shape. It gets harder to maintain weight and easier to gain weight. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's good to start this process now and to make like minor course corrections if you have to, even if it doesn't seem like anything's urgent right now. Um, and yeah. to also and, plan on gaining a pound a year for the rest of your life, just FYI. <laughs> or, or say no, say, you know what? I'm not going to like it. it it's one, it's hard. It's really you hard to, not to. Eventually. Yes. You have to fight against it. For example, to control the snacking, like that is largely a habitual thing. Like, you know, the, the, oh, yeah, there is yeah. certainly a, a habit of like, that many of us get into, I have, of like, oh, when we're sitting down to watch TV, we grab a snack. Like that's, once you're in that habit, it's hard to break. But also, part of that is the food you're choosing to eat. If you eat like a really like, you know, protein, fat, heavy dinner, then you're going to be too full to want to eat. Like you're just not going to want to think about it. One of the things that, that I learned going lower carb was like, the like the blood sugar up and down cycle that you get on like when you're eating most, a lot of sugary stuff or a lot of carb stuff like you eat and then you know your sugar rush eventually crashes and then a couple hours later you want a snack and once you break that and you're not having a lot of sugar or carbs anymore that up and down pattern that roller coaster levels out big time and it's a lot easier not to eat more not it's a lot easier not to snack more it's a lot easier to make better choices like you know and fruit like (laughs) i hate to tell you fruits up there with oil is like things that most people overestimate the health benefits of (laughs) and things that are like best enjoyed in extremely small amounts not like for instance anything like where you're when you're when you make a smoothie i don't know what kind of ratio you use but like when, when one makes a smoothie when most people make a smoothie there's quite a bit of fruit in there not to mention the fact that there that the other ingredients of a smoothie might also be sugary. So things like soy milk, quote unquote milk. Right. There's <laughs> just sugar. Every milk from cow milk to all the alternatives that tastes like anything is sweetened. 
You you know because you can buy unsweetened versions of some of them, and they taste like nothing, and they're horrible. Nobody wants them. Almost all of those milks, including actual cow milk that we just call milk, do have a non-trivial amount of sugar in them. So that's you know you're at, you're getting sugar there. You're getting sugar in the fruits. Also, the way your body processes sugar is different if it's already all ground up versus if you're like you know eating a blueberry and just chewing it like once before you swallow it. Like so, like you also don't want to have like a rapid spike in sugar, which you get if something's already been blended or processed versus like if you're eating, if you're like munching on an apple, that's, that's going to have a slower processing, which is better for you, better for things like, you know, insulin resistance over time and stuff like that. Like it's, it's fairly complicated and we don't have a great understanding of all this and how this works yet. And I'm certainly no pro uh, to even be trying to communicate what our science is these days, but all that stuff matters. And so if you can get yourself off of that train of like, having pretty sweet cuisine really and having you know carb heavy stuff which once you eat it it basically is treated like sugar in your body after not that long of a time um and especially the you know the more refined stuff like this this stuff all matters and it all adds to body sugar spikes and you know over time problems like insulin resistance and, and various things that that causes that are pretty common you know problems for people so generally reducing the carbs and and that includes both sugars and like you know carbohydrate in other forms really helps a lot and i know it sounds you know crazy it sounds ridiculous but like trust me it's it helps a lot and again they're like don't do the thing that i did that everyone does where you just then you just have like bacon and cheese for every meal because then you're gonna have cholesterol problems again like so that's that's not great (laughs) but like there are other things like for instance lean meats having a lot more vegetables that are not potatoes and and not just fruits like having small amount of fruit as a treat but having you know carrots carrots have some sweetness but not too bad have you know a lot of greens you know other green vegetables zucchini like there's there's a whole bunch of stuff you can eat that is pretty much like you know free health wise um that is filling and nutritious and everything else you know, occasional, you know, dairy and stuff is fine. I, I found um, Greek yogurt is a really kind of magical food for health purposes uh, because yeah, but, uh, as long as you can tolerate that much dairy, which is non-trivial for some, like I can't have a whole ton of it, but like it's a really good snack to have like, like if you're hungry and it's on a mealtime and, and you, you want to like bridge the gap to the next meal, a couple of spoonfuls of unsweetened Greek yogurt with like one blueberry on top of each <laughs> spoonful makes it a sweet snack that is tasty but it's not there's almost no sugar in that there's a ton of protein and it keeps you full for a long time this whole world of like you know low carb eating there's a lot of value to it in a lot of reasons beyond strictly wanting to lose weight and i highly suggest that since you're already taking steps to lose weight and you know as part of this process try low carb also the same way you're looking at calories now look at carbs and try to keep it into the low carb range, depending on whatever diet you're looking at. That's generally something like, you know, 20 to 40 grams a day. Look at the labels of everything and keep it under that and see how it feels and see like, you know, you don't have to do it for long, do it for two weeks and just see like how your body feels. Do you feel good? How is your energy level throughout the day? How is the snacking cravings and everything? It makes a pretty big difference. I was going to say something about a low carb. Sounds like the, the thing you described before Marco of like, uh, I could do that kind of diet where I count calories, but then it'd be miserable. That's what low carb sounds like to me. Low carb equals misery. Well, because your entire diet is like massive amounts of pasta and stuff, which is great. Like, <laughs> not my, that's not my entire diet, but I do love it. I, so do I. Mm. <laughs> but I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
I know. I know all the things, yeah. Yeah, pasta's awesome. But, you know, it's and I'm I, I'm really good at making and eating pasta, but I can't <laughs> I can't do it. Like I, I very rarely have to ha- can have it now because I, I now I've gotten to the point now where I actually feel bad if I eat like a whole bowl of pasta. Like if I eat a very carb heavy meal, I get like a stomachache. It's a, it actually feels bad. That's one of the good things about doing any of this stuff, especially even like minor calorie restriction or portion control, is that eventually you can't even eat the portions that you used to eat. Like you physically, they make you feel bad. Like that's the, you want to get into the goal state, like Marco said, where like if you were like, oh, as my treat now, I've been so good for a month, I'm going to have my normal portion of whatever. And you eat your normal portion of whatever and you feel so full that you feel like you're going to die. Success. Yeah. <laughs> occasionally i do that like I, I did that recently where you know we hadn't had indian food in forever and we got takeout i'm like ah and then i ate like what i think is a normal portion of my like treating myself and i was like nope too much <laughs> too you don't eat that much food anymore too much and then you're miserable and you're like the next time you learn it's like you can't even as your treat you cannot eat that much of that kind of food anymore used to be able to when you were acclimated to it but you become unacclimated and you want to be unacclimated to it you want to not be able to pull that off without feeling bad that's the that's the the great pace you get into because that's sustaining because then you like you don't want to make yourself feel sick so you'll take half the portion and success you got your treat and you eat half of what you normally would yeah i want to talk to you about your running marco because like i said you, you made that one off but we're running real long there's not much to say yet i started running uh not even like too aggressively yet, but uh, yeah, just started doing it. I've been in doing various exercise things for a few years now. This is just the newest thing that I'm trying. Here we are. Uh, I was going to suggest this. Uh, you're probably not going to go for this, but anyway, there is when when I lived in Long Island, my parents always did the summer run series where you have races all over Long Island. Uh, some of them are uh, at least one of them. They usually do a one mile run on the beach at robert moses which sounds like oh, a one mile race that's so stupid try running a mile on the beach <laughs> it's, it is a hell of a race anyway they do races all over the island and it is a great way to sort of get out and about and see things obviously this is not applicable in covid times so pretend we eventually come out of this that's a great way to sort of have a fun thing to do on you know uh, on evenings in the summer go to see a different new park somewhere it's usually very scenic some of them are on beaches some of them aren't and then participate in an actual competitive race where you're in age groups, right? So you have a chance of finishing, uh, you know, meddling if you are reasonable for your age group. And as you get older, it gets easier as your competitors die. It's really, it's a great, uh, wow. great. Yeah. My, uh, my dad was, dad never got, never got onto the podium until he was like the only 70 plus year old one running. And he's like, guess what? I'm going to win my age group now. Um, anyway, I recommend that because, uh, Running, uh, unlike other things, like most people don't use do competitive weightlifting, but running, there is a potential for it to be competitive. And it sounds like, oh, I'm not going to be competitive. I don't care about racing. But it is, it's fun to participate in a race. You're not going to win. You're not going to win your age group. You're not even going to run fast. But just participating in a race with people is fun. Like if you've never, especially if you've never done before and never ran in school or anything like that. It's a surprisingly fun social activity of like everyone, we're all in this together. We're all going to go out and we're going to compete and everyone supports each other. And you get to travel all over Long Island and see nice places and uh, get a bunch of junk food at the end as your reward. Some of them have beer at the end, too. And after you've, you know, after you run 5K in the blazing sun, you, you're allowed to have a beer. <laughs> well, 5K is a lot more than one mile, but 
I can't remember when I came home from school one year, like I'd come home from school and they were like, oh, we're going to the summer run series. You want to come with us or whatever? I was like, yeah, I forget what year it was in college. It was like a, maybe a sophomore or junior. Yeah, I'll come do the run with you. So I come home from school. It's like a holiday or, you know, or maybe it was like the end of the school year. I just come home from school and back home. We go do the run with them. I'm like, oh, I guess I'll do it. It was a 10K. It's the longest I've ever oh run my in my entire life. They didn't Goodness. even tell me. I'm running the race. I'm like, when does this end? We ran by the start finish line a couple of times. I'm like, are we just going to run forever? <laughs> And I finished the race. I'm like, oh, my God, how long was that? So I was at 10K. Like, Tell me ahead of time. <laughs> to this day, the longest race I ever ran and the most miserable I've ever been ever running. Yeah, They're fun. Now I just take pictures. It's a lot easier. 